Up next, it's Real Talk with Rodney Hyde on RCR Reality Check Radio. What I want to achieve with RCR is conversation. And I think we have lost the art of conversation. With RCR, I just hope that people can learn that we can all be different, we can have our own opinions, have our own views, and have those conversations in a respectful way. Because respect needs to be given, it needs to be earned, and I think that we can prove that people of all diverse perspectives, ages, opinions, can have a platform, and we can work and talk together. And so that's what I hope we get to achieve with RCR. Just independent thought, alternative thought, and I I expect that I will be castigated by many people for offering different opinions. But, you know, as I've said before, there is no such thing as a wrong opinion. Opinions are like noses. Everybody's got one. The exchange of views, fair debate, no cancelling, no interrupting, no aggressive responses. We want to hear what people have to say. Whatever side you're on. And the listener, the consumer with that information, can make of it what they will. That is the mission. It's a good mission. Thanks for tuning in to RCR, Reality Check Radio. If you like what you're listening to, or even if you don't agree with what you're listening to, then get in touch with us now. You can text us with your message to 2057. That's 2057. Or if you'd rather email us, you can at inbox at realitycheck.radio. We would love to hear from you, so get in touch with us now. Good morning, everyone. You're on Reality Check Radio, and it's Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. It's my great pleasure to be with you this morning, and we've got some lovely, lovely guests coming up. First up is Dr. Cherie Trotter. She's from the Indigenous Coalition for Israel, and she's done her PhD on Zionism in New Zealand. You're going to be so interested in this, um, what she discovered, what she found out, and also we'll talk about the division within Maoridom, about the politics of the Middle East. Also, we've got Dini Velda Van Cleef, Oh, oh my goodness, I'm so looking forward to this. She's the organizer of the control group. Those of us that haven't had the COVID jab and the ability to monitor our health over time compared to those that have. She's going to be very interesting beaming in from the UK. Also, Syra Boyle. Oh my goodness, it's a lineup of the ladies. Syra Boyle is the principal of the Mount Hobson Academy, and she's going to be uh, explaining to us how it works. So you can have this idea of homeschooling, but still with an online teacher, or you can have an online teacher helping you teach your kids. going to be interesting. Remember, you can send us a text at 2057, email me inbox at radleycheck.radio, get comfortable, get working. Keep driving, do what you're doing, have a nice coffee, have a nice cup of tea, and enjoy the show, because I know I will. The greatest threat to our democracy and our country is the belief that someone else will save it. RCR is on a mission to revive honest media, and now you too can help make that happen. 
Introducing the Foundation Members Club, the easiest way to support RCR and be rewarded for doing so. Receive exclusive benefits only for members, including your very own backstage pass to join the hosts for interactive behind-the-scenes discussions. And also, our all-new daily curated news summary, RCR Bytes, delivered to your email inbox every morning, keeping you on the pulse of the news that matters in just a few minutes per day. To find out more, visit realitycheck.radio members and see how you too can join the mission that's making a difference. Here on Rally Check Radio, it's Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. Oh, we're in for a treat. You can't imagine a country like New Zealand further away from the Middle East, about as far away as you could possibly get, and this was this was recognised right back, back, back in the day. And very few Jewish people here and scattered through New Zealand. But here's something I didn't know. That in 1927, when my dad was just one years old, Dr. Alexander Goldstein, came to New Zealand and did a lecture tour. And he was one of the leading Zionists of the era. And he came to New Zealand and he gave talks about the Zionist Palestine projects and the ideas which inspired them. And these meetings attracted much publicity and their message was received favourably by audiences around the country and by the Prime Minister, Gordon Coates. Now listen to this. I didn't know this, and I doubt you did too either. Upon his return to England, Goldstein commented, quote, If I were asked which was the best Jewish community in the world from the Zionist point of view, I would say New Zealand. He later added, If there is a role of honour in the world for communities, the first place in that role of honour belongs to Auckland. Now, just to show you that I'm capable of reading, that's the opening first page of the introduction of a PhD thesis completed at the University of Auckland by Dr. Cherie Trotter, who is our guest. Good morning, Dr. Trotter. Yeah, good morning. Nice to sit, nice to be here. Well, I never thought that I'd be spending a happy time earlier this morning reading a PhD thesis, but it's a remarkable history. It is. It is remarkable. And I, and I guess it's remarkable because it's kind of a forgotten story. It's what I know little about, and I'm not even sure if the Jewish community um, yet knows, apart from the more senior members, uh, mm. know that part of our history. So, yes. PhD's a big deal. You obviously put a life on hold, dove into it, it consumes you. What motivated you for this topic? Well, I, I guess that's been quite a long journey uh, for my husband and myself. Uh, we are Christians, and so, of course, uh, the land of Israel is the birthplace of Christianity. It's the place where, you know, Jesus was born the prophets, the apostles, the Bible all came from that place. So I would say that's the starting point. Um, but from there, we bega began to learn, research, uh, get to know the land, the people. We got involved in a number of projects. One of them was interviewing Holocaust survivors. And 
we had the opportunity to interview survivors while we were in Israel. And uh, we um, interviewed and photographed them. My husband, Perry, is a photographer. And we came home and Perry created these little exhibitions around the stories, very short three-minute stories, thinking we really need to reach a new generation, you know, and educate them about the Holocaust. And then over the years, we've interviewed about 70 survivors. Uh, and so as I, I also um, got very involved with, uh, kind of advocacy for Israel because having had the experience of meeting lots of Israelis, going to the land, seeing seeing the land, seeing the people, beginning to understand the politics, I could see that there was a real problem. Uh, this is even back in the early um, 2010s, 2013, 14, where, you know, there was a Gaza war back in 2014. And I could see that uh, what we were getting uh, in our news and our media was very... Um, one-sided, biased, and and lacking a whole other side of the story. It hasn't changed, by the way. And so I just became more and more involved. And I had the opportunity after finishing raising my four children, I actually homeschooled them, four children here. Oh, good for you. My goodness. So I had the opportunity to um, kind of do some, go back to university, pick up my studies, do postgraduate studies. I did an honours degree. I did a PhD. I was actually wanting to do something around um, Israel and the Israel-Palestinian conflict, but it was quite hard to find somebody who was able to um, supervise that topic. So I found a topic that fitted within New Zealand history and it focused on the New Zealand community in New Zealand, um, mostly the Jewish community, but also um, the non-Jewish community around this idea of Zionism. And uh, the topic was suggested to me by one of the, um, I would call, matriarchs of the community who said to me, it would be interesting to find out why the early rabbis were so Zionist. And uh, so the early rabbis um, were Rabbi Goldstein, Rabbi Astor, and between them, they kind of presided over the Jewish community in Auckland for about 80 years. The first rabbi, Rabbi Goldstein, was the rabbi for 50 years, from about 1880 to 1934, I think it was, and then Rabbi Goldstein from then until the 1970s. And so with these two rabbis being very... My goodness, that's a long innings, isn't it? It's a long innings and um, created a lot of continuity as well. And with both of those rabbis being strongly Zionistic, it had quite an influence on the community. Now, just hold that. Zionism. Zion is a mountain. What mountain is it? Is it Mount Zion? Well, yes, it's a mountain, and it's used interchangeably in the Bible as a reference to um, Israel, to Jerusalem, but it is a place in Jerusalem, a mountain in Jerusalem. And so, we know we know which one it is. Like, we know where Zion yeah. is, or is it something lost in antiquity? No, I think, well... I have to come back to you on that one. I okay. Double check. I need to double check that one. And to be a Zionist is to be what? Well, Zionism is the movement to, well, back back before there was a state of Israel, it was a movement to reestablish um, a Jewish homeland in their ancestral land. I mean, there are different ways of phrasing it. It's about the self-determination of the Jewish people in their homeland. 
So that's what it was. And prior to 1948, it was the movement towards. And since then, it's really the movement to um, just support that. And of course, there's a lot of um, there's a lot strong anti-Zionist movement. And so, uh, sadly, the Zionist movement still has relevance in the sense that uh, people still people will want to deny uh, the legitimacy of the state of Israel. And so, Zionism is still uh, an issue today. Let me give you my thumbnail understanding of this and see if I've got it right. Jewish people lived in the area we now know as Israel for thousands of years, pre-biblical. Uh, three, 4,000 years they have lived there and have been identified there. The place itself has been colonised, I guess the word is, by everyone, the Greeks, the Ottomans, um, the Babylonians. And through this process, the Jewish people have been, is it because of this process that they scattered through the world? What, what caused the Jewish people to spread out across Poland, Russia, Western Europe? What, what caused that great scattering? Well, it was really after the Romans came and um, colonised and took over and, and dispersed them, uh, kicked them out in 135 AD, thereabouts, uh, that the main uh, dispersion... Wow, way back then. Mm, yeah, but but as you say, well, I don't, I don't know if you did say, but um, there was always a pres Jewish presence in the land, you yes. know, that whole period so yes. not all of them were dispersed but a great majority were but there were previous dispersions as well in the in the babylonian um mm. colonization there were jews that were scattered in that period as well and as they moved around the world the jewish people maintained their community maintained their faith and maintained the pull back to their home. Yes, that's right. I mean, they're called, you know, the oldest um, Indigenous community, and uh, it's quite remarkable uh, the way they were able to maintain their peoplehood, as it were, through their religious practices. But it's all embedded in their religious practices, you know, praying three times a day facing Jerusalem and mm. you know, Jerusalem being embedded in all of their festivals like in, you know, Passover or Pesach festival, uh, they end with next year in Jerusalem. So there is always that aspiration of returning back to the land. Mm. And, of course, the concept of a state is a relatively modern concept. So there has never been, as I understand it, a state of Palestine. There's been a place, Palestine, the Romans named it, and then the British named it, but there hasn't been a, a, a state of Palestine, and nor had there been a state of Israel, I guess. There'd been a community of, of Israel, I'm guessing. Correct me wherever, if I wander off in my own imaginings, but there was this desire that... Jewish people wanted a place where they would feel safe because right through their history, 
they have been discriminated against and killed, murdered, destroyed. And they had nowhere to go to. So you can understand it, right? They were never properly accepted in places where they had lived for hundreds and hundreds of years. Mm. So that's where this idea, I guess, and I noticed that the modern era of it, reading your thesis, started in the 1890s, this idea that there should be a state, a Jewish state, based in, the, in, I guess, around Jerusalem, started in the 1890s, became a movement around the world. The British took over the area after World War I, having the Ottoman Empire being torn to bits and the Middle East being reshaped. And they administered what was then called Palestine. And then after the horror of the Holocaust, the Jewish state was born in 1948. And the Jewish people finally, after a couple of thousand years, had a place to go to. Is yeah. that, is well, that me... the thumbnail history of it? I'll just unpack that a little bit or unpick it a little bit. So prior to 1948, the Jewish people have twice had sovereignty in the land. So under the period of King David, uh, I guess he was a constitutional monarch, um, and then there was a period around the Hasmonean period uh, where they had sovereignty for a short time. So the Jews are the only people who have had sovereignty over that land. You're correct, there's never been a, um, a, a, a state or of Palestine or any such thing. So, yes, you're correct that it was the Romans who renamed that area um, Palestina, and it was really a slap in the face to the Jews, you know, after, nine, nine, um, sorry, 135 AD, the Romans came in and kicked them out, and then they renamed that place in order to obliterate uh, the Jewish identity and connection. So they named it after one of the ancient enemies of, of the um, Jewish people. Oh, really? Mm. I had not appreciated that. Yeah, the, the, the Philistines. And the interesting thing is that Philistine is in Arabic. They don't even have that letter F, Philistine, apparently. I don't know Arabic myself, but I've, I've read that. Um, so this land, it, it as you say, it had many conquerors over the centuries. Uh, and then from 1517, it was under the Ottoman Empire for 400 years. But if you fast forward to the 19th century, that area called Palestine was really a wasteland. It had um, no kind of geographic borders, as it were. It was an administrative district of um, Syria. Uh, it was an abandoned land. It had been you know, abused and misused for centuries by various conquerors who had come and gone, had a very small but varied population. Uh, so... That's that's what Palestine was in the nineteenth century. Now, and there, there were, were 
Jewish people living there continuously all through this time? Yes, that's right. And they were mostly centred in the um, very sacred places in Judaism, so Jerusalem and Safed and Hebron and those sorts of places. Mm. Um, And so in the the 19th century, there was a phase in the 1830s when Egypt actually got control of Palestine, and under their control they opened it up for foreigners to be able to come into the land. And so you, you began to see in the 19th century a lot of people coming, a lot of Europeans coming, um, like the French and the Germans and the Russians coming to establish churches, churches sorry, and missions. And you also saw a flourishing of um, exploration, archaeological exploration in the land, um, this uh, Palestine Exploration Fund, which was, of course, came from Britain. Britain was the great imperial nation of the 19th century, as it were. And um, so they had very interested in Palestine because it was the Holy Land and it was the birth of Christianity, and Britain was very much, uh, you know, a Christian nation in that period. So there was a lot of that uh, interest there. But with the Russian, uh, sorry, the um, Jewish movement back to the land, so a lot of that came from the persecution they were experiencing in Russia and Eastern Europe, Um, particularly in the 1880s, there was a, you know, um, suppression of, of the Jews by the Tsars and a lot of Jews left in that period, about 3 million left and many went to the United States of America um, but some of them went back to Israel, Palestine at that stage and um, began to try and establish communities. It was very difficult, um, swamp ridden land, it was back breaking, uh, they weren't used to the conditions Many of those early communities failed, um, but that was the beginning in the 1880s. So there was this movement back to the land prior to Theodore Herzl and his Jewish state. So Theodore Herzl's story is a little bit different to that Russian story because Theodore was part of that the Enlightenment. You know, he came out of the secular Enlightenment. He, he was secular. He wasn't religious. Uh, he became very disillusioned with the anti-Semitism that he saw first in Austria, where he was, um, where he came from, and then in France, where he witnessed the trial of Dreyfus, which um, he was a Jewish. Oh, that was terrible, wasn't it? Yes. Faced a lot of anti-Semitism. And I think for him, that was kind of like this wake-up call that because um, Theodore had these different ideas of how, how you could combat anti-Semitism. At one stage, he thought that they should all convert to Christianity. But, you know, his his ideas were developing. And so eventually he came up with this manifesto uh, called The Jewish State. Uh, I think it was called The Jewish State, something like that. Anyway, it was his manifesto and um, laid out his program. And so he started to have these uh, Jewish congresses where he invited Jewish people from all around the world to come and work towards this. Now, there wasn't, I mean, there was a diversity of views and opinions, and Zionism itself was very diverse. So you had secular, you had religious people, you had different ideas of how to do things, you had practical Zionists, and you had um, political Zionists, and you had revisionists. There were a whole lot of different kinds of um, emphases within the Zionist movement. And 
there, it wasn't actually um, set in concrete that it would be a return to Israel. Um, at one stage in 1903, they considered an offer from Britain to go to Uganda. Of course, that was thrown out the um, out the door by the Russians who were more religious, and for them it was Zion or nothing. So, mm. you know, their, their ancestral homeland, the place of their kind of religious um, connection. Uh, and so um, the, uh, Herzl actually died after that conference. I think it took a huge toll on him. There were also other um, kind of suggestions. At one stage, there was a suggestion of land in Australia for a, for a Jewish homeland. And another aspect was that they didn't know what it was going to look like. They knew they wanted a homeland within that land, which was their ancestral homeland, but they didn't necessarily, as the mandate started post-World One, they didn't necessarily know that it was going to be a state. Um, they There was one suggestion that it could be part of the British Commonwealth, for example. So it was a, it was a very varied and dynamic movement, and it wasn't just one thing. And I guess this is the way it is with all history, actually. Most history is far more complicated and complex than the sort of narratives we hear. And the narrative we currently hear is um, so simplistic, it's ridiculous. Um, so, yeah, those are some of the, that's a little bit of the background. And there was this, end of World War One. there was a thing called the Balfour Declaration. What was that? The Balfour Declaration in 1917 was a letter from um, Balfour, minister in British government, to Walter Rothschild, who was a representative of the Jewish community in England. And it merely was a, it was a letter to say that the British government supported a Jewish homeland in, um, in Palestine. Uh, and there were other provisions like the fact that the peoples of the land, their rights would not be affected so it was a letter uh, to the Jews, but, you know, the British also gave a letter to the Arabs, and so there were these conflict, conflict mm. promises mm. that British made to different parties. And post-World War II, what happened? How did, how did the State of Israel come to be? Well, I think it's probably important to just talk about the British mandate period. So um, the British were given the mandate well, at the end of World War One, the Ottoman Empire was divided up between, mostly between the British and French, who were given caretakership over the different areas. Um, so the original British mandate actually included Jordan, and very early on, Jordan was divided up to be a state with the Arabs. So if you think about it, they were Palestinian Arabs who were given Jordan, and some mm -hmm. people argue, well. That was, that was what was provided for the Arabs, the Palestinian yep. Arabs, was Jordan. Uh, but so anyway, there was a small piece left, and I don't know how many listeners realise how small Israel is. It probably fits into Northland of New Zealand down to maybe um, uh, Arewa. You know, it's a very yes. small country that we're talking about. Uh, so the British were given mandate, and it was their job, it was a caretakership, um, and it was to be temporary until the peoples of the land could sort themselves out to govern themselves. 
And the British found themselves between these two competing nationalities, the, the Jews and the Arabs. When I say nationalities, you had the Zionist movement, which was a nationalist movement and which had started in the 19th century. And so it had developed, it had grown a bit of organisation and um, they were very committed to their goal and quite organised. They weren't actually well funded. Um, there was a lot of requests from the rest of, you know, the Jewish people in the world to help support this project. Um, the Arabs, on the other hand, it was the beginning of Arab nationalism and and uh, the whole Palestinian identity didn't really develop strongly till the 1960s. So during that mandate period, the British had the job of caretakership until the peoples could govern themselves. The British soon realised that this wasn't going to work because there was a lot of resistance from the Arabs uh, towards having any kind of Jewish homeland state or whatever. There was a massacre in Hebron, which was one of the holiest sites for Judaism where they'd lived for centuries. And there was a massacre on the Jews in Hebron, 1929. Um, so by 1937, the British had come up with a plan, which was basically a two-state solution. It was the idea, it was called the Peel Commission that went in and decided that they couldn't live together. They needed to have a state for the Arabs and one for the Jews. And um, now over this period, of course, we get into World War II during this period and Nazi Germany, persecution of Jews, Jews trying to get out of Germany and many wanting to come to immigrate to Israel. At the same time, British immigration policies became increasingly more difficult, harsher towards the Jews, and fewer and fewer Jews were allowed to immigrate to then Palestine. And so that was a really difficult time for the Jewish people. So, so you might be a Jewish person for seeing what was happening in Poland, France, Germany. You want to go to what was then called Palestine and the British could say no. Yeah, they had quotas of a certain number of people that could come in. Oh, my goodness. Be restricted, yeah. Mm, okay, carry on. And, um, and so... As you know, as the mandate period continued, it was really difficult. The the British, it, the for the Jewish people, it seemed that the British were being quite obstructionist towards them, and I'm sure the Arabs weren't happy with them either. So by 1947, the British had had enough, and they just wanted to hightail it out of there. New Zealand actually um, opposed the way British Britain did that. Uh, because they felt that it was going to turn into a blood bloodbath and that they were um, not fulfilling their responsibilities. But the UN kicked in 1947 in November. The UN came up with this partition plan, uh, a state for the Jews, a state for the Arabs. So the Jews accepted it, even though it was much smaller than what they hoped for. The Arabs rejected it and began um, a war. So at this stage, it was like a civil war between the Jews and the Arabs within British Mandate Palestine. 1948, May, Britain leaves, the Jews um, announce their state, and then the five Arab armies come and attack the new state because they're not willing to accept a Jewish state in their region. So for the next, you know, couple of years, well, till the end of 49, there was a war that went on and Israel ended up winning that war. Uh, and... Um, so, yeah, that's that's a brief overview of the mandate period. Um, 
the Palestinian people, just quickly, they are, we're living in what we now know as Israel. And many still do. So you have Palestinians having the full right of citizenship as in as, as Israelis, free speech, the right to vote, rule of law. John Minto did point out that they don't automatically get called up into military service, but they can apply and serve as soldiers in the IDF. They serve as judges. But many Palestinians, and this is the bit that becomes a contested bit of history, left, or, in John Minto's view, were rounded up and pushed into the Gaza Strip or onto the West Bank. What happened there? Who were these people? Well, who were the people? Uh, the Arabs. So, yeah, they were the Arabs who lived in Palestine. And this period uh, was quite dynamic in, in terms of the peoples who were coming and going and new immigrants. So, for example, a definition of a Palestinian refugee is somebody who lived in the land between 1946 and 1948. I think that's a reflection of the fact that there were a lot of new immigrants that came. So there were Arabs who might have been living in that land a long time or who might have come in from neighbouring countries like Jordan and Egypt and, and Lebanon into the land. But in 1948, they lived in the land. So the, at that point of time, they were living. And how did they end up not in Israel? Well, 1948, we had this war that broke out where the five Arab armies came and invaded. So if you read a historian like Benny Morris, um, he um, has written a good book on what happened. Of course, the Palestinians call this the Nakbar and they talk about being um, dispossessed of the land and kicked out and ethnic cleansing and all sorts of accusations. But in actual fact, 20% um, of the people chose to stay in the land. So, for example, we met Yosef Haddad earlier this year who came to New Zealand. He's an Israeli Arab. And he tells the story of how his grandfather, uh, who lived in Haifa, chose to stay. He had a business. He didn't want to go. So he stayed. So there were a number of reasons why they left. One was that the Arab higher command was urging people to leave, saying, get out, we'll kick the Jews into the sea and you can come back. So that was one of the reasons. There was a flight from some of the wealthy and middle class people because they didn't want to be in a war, so they left. And then there were some who were evacuated, I guess much like today, for military reasons, for military purposes, because they might have been in an area that had um, strategic military um, value. So there were a number of reasons why they left, but some chose to stay. And the 20% who stayed, they generally call themselves Israeli Arabs, but some in recent times have chosen to, to identify themselves as Palestinians. But I have seen that more and more are just wanting to clearly identify as Israeli Arabs. And people like Yosef, he's one of the strongest advocates for Israel today because he says that terrorists don't distinguish between Jews and Arabs. They kill, you know, their bombs will kill Jews and Arabs. And he talks about when the Intifada broke out, broke out and restaurants were blown up by suicide bombers, his parents 
and grandparents lived. He lived just down the road and his family could have been killed by those suicide bombers. So he, he's very clear that the battle is against terrorism. What is an, the Intifada? Oh, Intifada is, is an uprising of violence. And so there have been a couple of Intifadas which have generally followed um, the peace process, actually. <laughs> so in 2000, there was a peace process, um, peace talks, where um, President Clinton was quite heavily involved in those and they made quite a generous offer. And there have been a number of peace land for peace offers given to the Palestinians and they keep rejecting them. And uh, so after that particular one, the second intifada broke out. They rejected the peace offer. Uh, the second intifada broke out. Now, this was where they were sending in suicide bombers and they'd go to bus stops and they'd go to restaurants and just kill people and kill the suicide bombers. He would die as well because, you know, he wanted to become a martyr or she wanted to become a martyr. It wasn't just men who were doing this. This is why the security wall was built, and this is why security measures on the borders were um, uh, set up, is to stop the um, suicide bombing. So, you know, one of the narratives you hear is about the apartheid wall. Well, the reason that wall was set up was to stop suicide bombing, and it worked. Um, you know, they don't have that problem anymore. They have other problems. Uh, but so these are some of the um, kind of the side of the story that doesn't get told, which gives mm. you a fuller picture mm. of what's actually going on there. And the Palestinian people moved to the Gaza Strip and the West Bank, which back in those days, 49, 50, were controlled by Egypt with the Gaza Strip. Mm, yeah, it was. And then, and then I guess the West Bank was controlled by, what, Jordan or Syria or Jordan? Yeah, till the six till the six day war. Yes, forty eight and sixty seven. Yes, yeah, so they had escaped out of what was called Israel. Then, when the Arabs attacked again, Israel took that country back, those those territories back for strategic reasons. Ended up with the Palestinian people. Um, had a vote pulled out in two thousand and five as part of quote the peace process pushed out all Jewish people, the Israeli government, out of the Gaza Strip and the West Bank to leave it to the Palestinian people. They elected Hamas, and this is where we are today. Mm -hmm. Now, Cherie, when you, you set up with others, our lovely friend Alfred I can never get his name right. Alfred Nara. Oh. Nara, Nara. <laughs> We've had him on. Oh, what a wonderful, loving man he is. Oh. You must enjoy his company enormously. I had him on the show when he was campaigning, and he was such a wonderful man. And you have set up the Indigenous Coalition for Israel, which when you set it up, you'd be thinking, oh, yes, this will be sort of an organization like Friends of Israel but Indigenous people, you would never have imagined, I suspect, or maybe because you're in the university, you saw this coming. A, that the next time there's this appalling attack on the Jewish people in Israel, that New Zealand political leaders 
and academics, and particularly Maori people who were in Parliament, would stand up for the Palestinians and in this way of victim and oppressor identify themselves with the Palestinians and an extraordinary mental somersault see the Jewish people as colonizers. Did you foresee that sort of thinking erupting? Uh, I think I could say I did. Um, I first started thinking about this in, I think it was 2016 or 2017, when Marama Davidson went to Gaza as oh, an yes. to stand yes. with the um, you know, indigenous women of Gaza. And look, I have every sympathy for the people of Gaza, and I am pro-Palestinian in the sense that I care about what's best for the Palestinian people. But I don't think what the Palestinian movement is doing is good for the people. Um, so I think the the narrative, there's a number of problems with the Palestinian narrative. And it seems like we've taken our history in New Zealand and superimposed it on the Middle East. And there are just too many problems with that. For example, what you're dealing with there in Gaza is a radical Islamist group. It's a radical Islamist group that's connected to the Muslim Brotherhood that has the same ideology and aims as ISIS and, and the Taliban. And for some reason, because Israel is involved, we see it differently. But we know what their goals are because they state it clearly. It is the annihilation of Israel. And so if we're talking about colonization, who are the colonizers here? It is the radical Islamists who are the colonizers because even though they were given back Gaza in 2005, they don't want just Gaza. They want the whole of the area from the river to the sea without Jews, by the way. And what would they do to them? They'd commit another genocide, which is what they did on the 7th of October. And so, you know, what I see happening with this narrative, I find quite disturbing, actually, the way... Actually disturbing. Yeah, the way that um, Maori activists have embraced the Palestinian cause as our own, uh, and they don't seem to be acknowledging all of that other side of it. They're not really fully acknowledging the the atrocities that happened, the mass sadism that happened on the 7th of October. And I've stolen that phrase from Paul Moon because I thought he described that very well. I mean, I don't know how many people are aware of how horrendous it was, but it's beyond imagina uh, beyond imagination what those terrorists did to innocent people on that day. And so, you know, any country that has less than an hour from their main city, a terrorist group who will come in and do the most horrendous things to your wife, to your mother, to your baby, to your grandmother, any civil country will do whatever they can to stop that ever happening again. And Hamas has promised they will do it again and again and again. And um, Israel has no reason not to believe them. And, and so, you know, these are some of the problems I see with the way this narrative is being pushed. It's, it's so different to our situation. Um, and it actually really um, kind of 
minimizes the suffering that Palestinian people, Palestinian women who have no rights, you know, it actually minimizes their suffering so much by trying to say that we in a democratic free nation like New Zealand, we have all of the rights in the world as Maori women, that we are somehow, you know, suffering the way these Palestinian women are suffering. suffering. Um, so I just see a whole lot of problems with that narrative. And, um, yeah, I could say more about that. that but that's It almost seems to me that we have become so stupid and I include myself in this because we're all being dumbed down by our phones and tweets and Facebook and TikTok, and your level of concentration doesn't extend to a PhD thesis. You struggle to read a long tweet or Facebook post or finish a newspaper article. And it seems to me that your Chloe Swarbrook's and your... Marama Davidson's and Debbie, no, I don't know who she is, the Maori Party lady, they seem to think, oh, the Palestinians are brown, a lot of Jews are white, America and the West are supporting Israel. Oh, I know whose side I'm on. Mm. It is almost that identity politics mm. void of any ethical analysis of the loss of life. Yeah. Yeah, it doesn't go very deep, that's for sure. But then there's this other, and I'm going to get, um, and I promise my listeners that you know where I stand on this, and I promise that, you know, recommend me people, we'll have people on to talk about this. But the Israeli army, the Israeli Defence Force is going out of its way not to hurt Palestinian civilians. They're struggling to do that because it's quite hard to know who the terrorists are and who they aren't. And it's doubly hard because Hamas uses civilians as What's protection? They put themselves behind the children, behind the women, under the hospitals, in the schools, in the mosques, for goodness sake. And the Israelis, when a Palestinian civilian is killed, the Israelis grieve. It's not something they're aiming to achieve. But Hamas glories in even their own deaths because they know of its propaganda value. Mm -hmm. And not only that, we saw something I've never seen before. I'm sure it's happened in Uganda or maybe Kosovo or something. Bosnia, but the killing of Jewish women and children, babies, and in their own words, the perpetrators glorifying it. This is a tough situation for the whole world, 
because what do we do? And I can't see how you can sit on the sidelines, Cherie. Yeah. Because this is, this attack is on every one of us. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, Marama and um, Chloe and the Maori Party are justifying such violence, targeting innocents against colonizers, identify Maori with Hamas, not Palestinian people, but Hamas, and you start to get a bit chill that me sitting here, little white boy in Otago, could be next. You know what I mean? Is that nasty and divisive, is it not? What what you're what you're standing up for isn't actually what's happening in the Middle East, it's what's happening amongst us now. And yeah. it's how we're treating Jewish people here. Mm. I mean, this is this is not something I would ever thought we would have to confront no. in this day and age. But you saw this coming when you saw I just thought Marama was misguided going on that boat and she was going to take food through to the poor people of Gaza and she was arrested by the Israelis. She has no clue, I thought to myself. But Mm. there's now a movement here in New Zealand behind her. Yeah. And that movement has... Mm, Sorry. No, you carry on. Yeah, that that movement has a long whakapapa in this country because it goes back to the period of the anti-apartheid movement and mm-hmm. those activists and it's in the activist circles and academic circles and I thought it was interesting that uh, Willie Jackson last week I don't know if you heard his speech to do with um, Israel and Hamas it was in a parliamentary speech where he kind of claimed the Maori position as you know we we are for the Palestinians he quoted Fidel Castro he quoted Yasser Arafat, and I found that interesting because there's been this alliance, a Soviet-Arab alliance, which has been anti-Israel since the 60s, and they have pursued a very definite propaganda campaign, very active over all of these decades, active at the UN, uh, and active in those circles of of activists and in academia. So that's one of the threads that I can see coming through that lies behind. So you get people like Marama Davidson and Chloe, um, it's, it is tied up with identity politics. It's tied up with critical theory, which sees everything in these simplistic terms of the powerful and the powerless. And it's almost as if it's a ticket. It's a ticket to belong to the club to be pro-Palestinian. And I know that in talking, to, I actually had an opportunity to try and talk to Marama. Um, just I saw her at a you know Waitangi um weekend so I went up and spoke to her and introduced myself and tried to talk about the conflict and it was clear that she didn't want to engage in any arguments so it's like people have and I think Debbie is the same they've they've adopted the talking points and they're repeating these slogans over and over again 
And if you can't, if somebody comes at you with something that they can't answer, then they just repeat another slogan. And and so you know, the, it, it's a complicated mix of things that has have got us to this point. It's it's happened in academia, and that's where it started, and it has infiltrated through um, through politics, uh, through media. Of course, they all get educated um, in the universities, and it started there, and it's infiltrated. And I guess one of the things that's been shocking after October the 7th is the power of the social media campaign. TikTok, you know, young people are getting their Palestinian narrative through TikTok and Instagram, and it was boom, 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 right from the beginning. And I had parents ringing me saying, what is going on? My daughter's got this on her feed. What does it mean? What is decolonization? And so um, it's been a very um, well-orchestrated propaganda campaign that we've seen. Uh, so it is very concerning. And I guess one of my concerns for Māori, being Māori myself, I haven't mentioned that for your listeners, but I'm Te Arawa Māori, grew up in Rotorua, and um, is not only the kind of linking to this Palestinian narrative, but underneath it, just the way that the colonisation narrative can actually become a shackle for us as a people because it locks us into this mentality of... um, of grievance and of resentment and of anger and um, hopefully not violence, but that would be the next step for all of this um, angry feeling underneath it all. And and I see it as a shackle. Um, Yes, there are reasons to look at our history and to say wrong was done and we need to face that. And I believe the country has, has... at least we've got this process in the Waitangi Tribunal of dealing with grievances. But I don't think we as Māori should stay there in a place of grievance. I think we need to rise above that and just look at what we have. You know, we have so much in this country to be grateful for. We can do anything we want to do as Māori in this country. We don't have to be held back by anything. You know, if you want to be the Prime Minister, you can do that. You can go and study and train and do whatever you need to do to become a doctor or a lawyer. So that whole narrative kind of concerns me. Um, but the linking to the Palestinian narrative is even more concerning because with that comes the violence. You know, the, you, it's, it, there's a violence at its core. And part of that violence is the fact that if you look at um, what Hamas says, what Palestinian leaders say and what their actions show is that no matter what offer is made to them, even if you give back land or you promise to give back, you know, one of the offers was 97% of the land, they don't actually want that. They want everything. They want all of the land. And part of that is the um, an Islamist kind of ideology that they see that as Muslim land and they won't be satisfied until they have complete control over that land. And um, history shows that Jews won't fare very well under that sort of control. And there would be no Jews, and there would be no Christians, there would be no Europeans, it would be a caliphate. Exactly, yeah. And um, it's so amazing. You will have contact with 
Jewish people here in New Zealand. If I was Jewish, I would be mortified. Mm -hmm. I would be scared. Yeah. I would actually be physically scared mm -hmm. because I am watching two small parties, admittedly, but adopting using the platform of parliament to, to justify attacks on Jewish innocence, legitimize those attacks as being provoked somehow, mm. and that here I am Jewish and there will be nut bars in New Zealand mm -hmm. who will act on this stuff. This is highly inflammatory. Yeah, for sure. And a total minimization of the horror of it, and our legacy media have been totally complicit. For the most part, yeah, they've given very little attention to the Jewish side of the story, the Israeli side of the story, and and anti-Semitism has gone through the roof in, in New Zealand, a uh, 1,500% increase. I've seen a statistic that has been circulated and there was a, a, you know, the Herald published something about it a couple of days ago. Uh, a Jewish friend of mine has shown me the photo of his son who got beaten up. It's, you know, the black eye. Um, kids, Jewish students are just having a horrendous time in their schools, you know, being called. Because their teachers won't like them, right? Well, I don't, I, I don't know. It's, it's from other students. You know, other yes. students are, are really um, harassing and discriminating and saying all kinds of terrible things to them. So it, it's pretty shocking. And I think our politicians need to be more responsible with their language. They seem to have no idea of the roll-on effect from the phrase from the river to the sea. You know, that is a call for genocide. And yes. sure, people will say, oh, no, it's this. But if Jewish people are telling you what that's what it is, if Israelis are saying that's what it is, if Hamas and Palestinian leaders are saying that's what it is, I think we should listen to them rather than our own kind of Western interpretation of what it yes, might be. Yes, the only one I I I got was I, we interviewed John Minto, which was a lovely conversation actually, and I was able to bite my tongue and and he did a, his best shot. But his idea of the river to the sea is just everyone li li living side by side in a liberal Western democracy with the rule of law and all having the vote. And I'm thinking, uh, that's not what these characters are saying. You know, that's not what this is not what they're saying. And every concession that's been given has sparked more violence. Mm -hmm. It doesn't lessen the violence. Um and the thing that I notice, Cherie, is that when you talk or attempt to talk with the likes of a Willie Jackson or a Debbie or a Chloe or a Marima, it's just as you say, there's not a reasoned discussion like you and I are having or what I and John Minter had, because he's old school lefty. They don't have an argument. They just have a position and a moral superiority for their position, which mm. they repeat over and over and over again. And then the next thing is, 
they get angry, and ultimately they will get violent because they can't argue their point. They can't discuss it. They can't reason it. And so sitting bubbling beneath us is a very, very troublesome thing for those of us who believe in the rights of the individual, Western democracy, um, all the things that the treaty was about and all the things that we sign up to as a society, this is being systematically ripped from us, but happening at a fast clip. Mm. And and the Gaza-Israel war is a flashpoint for it. Yeah, it is. Well, anyone that's interested in what Cherie's got to say, you should go to Indigenous Coalition for Israel. I've spent a happy couple of hours reading the articles there. They're very, very interesting. I must say, I enjoyed re reading Cherie's PhD, which is not something I ever thought I'd say, enjoy reading a PhD, but just I got through the first chapter and it was wonderful about this history of New Zealand and how we can sit here now and try to pretend to ourselves that, oh, this is a way over the other rest of the world, doesn't matter to us. Well, back in the 1920s, it mattered to us in a big way, it mattered to our Prime Minister. And when Mr. Goldstein came to New Zealand, it wasn't just the Jewish people that he was talking to, it was all New Zealanders, and it mattered to them. And interestingly, the Israeli ambassador, I didn't know this, has been welcomed onto the Marae up and down New Zealand. So this does concern us because of our history and all of this. I am talking to... Dr. Cherie Trotter, I must admit, it sounded odd to me, Indigenous Coalition for Israel, but I imagine you're using, in a funny way, identity politics back onto those that play identity politics. Yeah, I felt, that, I, I felt that Māori and Indigenous people needed a platform to raise yes. our voice and to show the other side of the story. Mm -hmm. Yes, and that you must give pause to th for thought. Mm -hmm. And you also show the Jewish people that married people aren't all of one voice on this, that there are a lot of married people. That I think part of the history that's lost too is that there has been a long history of um, the strong connection between Maori and Jewish people. Oh, tell me about that quickly. Yeah. Tell me about that quickly. I mean, Samuel Marsden, we can go back to Samuel Marsden, and he thought that there were so many similarities between Jews and Māori that um, he wrote up a list of them all, and he kind of started to promote this idea of Māori being one of the lost tribes of Israel. Uh, that was eventually debunked by scholars, but um, others also felt that. But I think also, you know, you see the um, 
the rise of the Māori prophetic movements in the 19th century, which were a form of resistance. But you had movements like Iharaira and Ringatū and um, even, you know, Paimārire, and then later on Ratana, they all gained their inspiration from the Bible. Many of them saw themselves as Jews and saw themselves as Israelites. So, you know, there have been many um, different points throughout our history, um, even with the resurgence of Te Reo, for example, uh, one of the proponents of that, John Rangiho, went to Israel and he saw how Hebrew had been kind of resurrected from a language that wasn't used commonly and it's the everyday language of Israel. And he saw the, um, the basically Kohanga Reo, their full immersion classes over there, they're called Upan in Israel. He brought that idea home. Uh, and so there have been lots of examples like that. Um, the, the Māori Queen, for example, uh, she had an affection for Israel and welcomed um, Israeli ambassadors onto the Turanga Waiwai Marae uh, down there. So there have been, again and again, you know, there's been this friendship towards the Jewish people and towards Israel. And it's really only been with the rise of a, a particular, I guess, political stream the last couple of decades that there's been this shift. Mm. And, of course, it's on the hard left. It's yeah. come from the hard left. It's come from the, the, the Soviet Union. When I was at university in the 70s, the Soviet Union was pumping money into activist groups that were pumping up Palestine. Uh, uh, the Palestinian people were a pawn for a proxy war with the US um, and for the Arab states. I mean, you got to feel sorry for them in so many ways because they have been led into a canyon where they're stuck. And um, when you look at the Maori leaders, I would suggest to you in our parliament, you don't get the sense they're speaking for Maori. Yeah, well, the stats don't show that either. No, the mana, the mana of true Maori leaders is much more respectful. And, um, but we will continue on the show, this discussion. Mm -hmm. uh, we are, feel, I feel so much more relatable. I always felt at, at a distance to Israel, and yet I felt so strongly for the Jewish people. Mm. And it's funny because it's in a Kiwi's DNA or cultural DNA. We go right. back. So That's I feel... I feel better about it because I don't, I'm not big on the history or the biblical interpretations of, of what happened there, but I just feel for these people because they are genuinely Western civilized and respecting each other and living for life. And mm. then around them, they're surrounded by people that want to destroy them and kill them. I mean, it's just hard to imagine. Dr. Cherie Trotter. It's been wonderful. I'm sorry I took up so much of your time, and I so much of it was me musing, and sort of and um, bouncing off you because you are steeped in this and able to discuss it with us. And I found that very helpful. I hope our listeners did too. It's real talk with Rodney Hyde. You're on Rally Check Radio. Remember, send us a text 2057. Email us at inbox at rallycheck.radio. Go to the Indigenous Coalition for Israel and sign up to the newsletter. What a wonderful thing. 
You're listening to Real Talk on RCR, Reality Check Radio. You're on Reality Check Radio. It's Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. Oh, my goodness. I remember going to the parliamentary protest and seeing these wonderful T-shirts, Control Group. Mm -hmm. I thought that was so funny. And they had the passes. I'm part of the Control Group. And it worked. We're speaking to the Control Group. I'm going to struggle. Denny Van Cleef. Did I get it right? Close enough. Denny. Denny Van Cleef. Denny Van Cleef. Where does that name come from? It's Dutch. Are you Dutch yourself? Not really, no. <laughs> it's just you a don't... family name. Yeah. Ah, I'm very... how wonderful. Now, tell me about the control group. Okay, so um, the control group was born out of a group of us at the very beginning of the pandemic. Um, we were in a freedom cooperative. We were trying to sort of work a way to navigate life uh, within lockdown. And we'd seen... Oh, just going... back up the truck a little bit. Yep. You were in a freedom collective. Was this before the pandemic or? No. Okay. So this you were crazy. just you were just living your life. Yeah. And the pandemic came along and you started this group. And how yes. did this group first, was it start off with friends or a group? How did it start? It, I think it was mostly people who, who I mean, for myself, I, I just looked on the internet locally to see if anyone else had similar thoughts about what was going on to me and I reached out to them and it seems that lots of different people did that we all ended up connecting um this this happened a lot it, 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 I don't know if it happened all over the world but it definitely happened in the UK an awful lot mm. okay and you formed this group and tell me how that went um that was absolutely fantastic we went through lockdown as as a group of of people who were connected by wondering what the heck was going on and and um lots of different people within the group were fighting different aspects of it going on marches etc um and one of the things that that cropped up was the fact that obviously the vaccine was coming out and we all knew that there was no control group for it well, there was a control group initially but they'd all been vaccinated um and there was a meme going around um that people were using saying um to, to say that they hadn't been vaccinated for covid i'm in the control group so we said, let's actually make a control group. Um, and fortunately, my, my husband is um, an expert in data um, and writing data systems. And so we said, well, let's just do it for the whole world, because the only way what, what we wanted to do with this was to show what was happening to the health of those people who hadn't taken the COVID vaccine, because obviously there's lots of stuff said about the vaccine and what it's going to do people do to people. But the only way to really show if it is the vaccine doing these things to people, say, for example, the, the myocarditis, uh, the pericarditis, the eye problems, etc. The only way to show that it's that and not COVID, for example, or environmental factors is if those people who haven't taken the COVID vaccine are are or are not showing those same things at the same rate. Mm. So we had this idea. We um So it wasn't it wasn't yeah. it wasn't a joke. It was actually serious. Yeah, absolutely. Yes. Hundred mm. percent. We basically we're all of us who started this um we're all parents and we could see that in the future medical interventions of all sorts were going to be mandatory. 
unless we did something to say, look, this isn't correct. And the information that comes out about all these medications is always, it's great, it's safe, it's effective, with no one able to say, actually, maybe it's not. And even those who do, they're, they're shut down. So by having a group of people who were who hadn't taken it, this is the strongest way that we can say, look, there is an issue, if, if indeed there is. Um, we're the proof, we're the living proof of that. We're, you know, if this is the case, we're living longer, we're not getting all these issues. Therefore, you know, you you can't push ahead with these mandates. And our idea was that you have to get enough people all over the world in this control group for it to be a large enough body of evidence that they cannot ignore it. So a small group of people isn't going to do it. And we're still trying to build to, we need over a million people to prove this in every wow. country in the world. <laughs> and we're deadly serious. A million people in total. Well, we'd like more, but yeah, that that will do start. Wow! And did it take off, or was yeah. it like disappointing? Uh, well, so initially, it was it was a, you know an idea we had. We built a, a little website, we built a database, and we just started to tell people about it. Um, and we created a card, which we because we we were very much aware that children are coerced into vaccines in schools. And we we really wanted to help people not be coerced into things. And so we created this little card that said must not be vaccinated. It's It was primarily said that for children, but also for any adult to say, you know, I don't want the vaccine. But it was the idea is it's a it's a membership card. But it was it was a way of everyone, everybody standing up and being visible together, saying, I don't want this particular thing. I'm part of this big group. You know, I'm not on my own. This is it. This is a valid choice. And so we created this this card and it somehow people heard about us. I mean, I spent a lot of time just talking to people over the telephone. Initially, people just phone me up and say, what are you doing? What is this? Um, and then eventually over Zoom and I had to learn how to use Zoom, which I hate. And I'm still getting used to it. Um, but it, it spread like wildfire. And the card, which we'd always said was, it's a visibility thing. It's to stand up. You know, if someone says you, you need to have your vaccine to get into this place, say no. I've got this card. I'm not having a vaccine. They may let you in. Well, oddly enough, it worked. And people in everywhere in the world were able to get into places. I mean, not absolutely. Isn't, isn't, that, isn't that a funny thing about human psychology? Mm. It's like if you put a uniform on, right, yeah, and you show a card. And, oh, oh, okay, you got a card. Oh, it must be real. You must yeah. be important. And then we yeah. go like sheep. Yeah, absolutely. And it, the idea is it was never a fake pass of any sort. It mm. is what it is. And it was a, a membership card of the control group, and it was an item of visibility. But, I mean, it, 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 that wasn't the main part of what we are doing. The study was the important part. Mm. But the card became the be-all and end-all. And it went utterly crazy because people were using it to get into hospitals, to save their jobs. People were using it to travel when they weren't supposed to. And I mean, it, it's it's crazy, but I'm incredibly glad um, mm. and incredibly proud of it because it's it's helped so many be. people. You should be. Now, you're based in England. Yeah. Which part are you in? In Eastbourne, which is on the Sussex coast. So next to Brighton. Most people have heard of Brighton. Yeah, lovely. Um, have you got many Kiwis in the control group? We've got quite a few. Um, I'm just trying to remember the numbers. It's on the front of our website. Now, it's either 34,000 or 64. I think it's 34,000 or thereabouts. Wow. There's wow. a lot. Um, wow. I hope you haven't said the wrong number. It's on, it's no, on no, the front. We'll have a look. 
So tell me, if I I never had the COVID jab, could I now join the control group? Would that be useful to you? Yeah, absolutely. Yes, we still want people to join. So we've got listeners who are somewhat sceptical of these things. <laughs> and um, would it be helpful to you if they signed up to your control group? Yes, absolutely. We and need... how do they do that? Right. Um, the website is www.controlgroup.coop. That's C-O-O-P or COOP. Okay, COOP. <laughs> and what would we need to do to be signed up? What do you need for about our health? Because we're a bit anxious about handing our health across. Absolutely. Yeah. And and I don't blame you. And we do ask quite a lot of questions. So the idea is that when you join the control group, you enter in your baseline health. So we just need to know your height, your weight, uh, your body size, um, roughly, you you get a choice of, you know, slender, athletic, larger, etc. We need a rough geographic location. um, And Oh, what else? And we ask your blood group. You don't have to answer any of these questions, by the way. Everything okay. is voluntary. Um, and then what we ask is every single month, we want you to pop in there and we want to know what health conditions you're suffering from every month. So and we've got a list of about 1500 different health conditions, because what we're trying to do is compare the health of those people who haven't taken the vaccine with the health of those who have ongoing uh we ask about the vaccinations you've taken any surgeries procedures covid tests um we ask you a few other bits and pieces as well but there is we ask quite a lot but the thing is we're only going to find out the information that we need the comparative information if we ask this information it's really vital um Mm. but it's it sounds cumbersome but it really isn't you only need to fill in information when it when it happens and then so each month if nothing if nothing's happened it's just a click yeah absolutely so that first time is a bit of an investment in time um but after that and do you remind people each month that it's time to fill out their health data we do we send out a monthly newsletter which is also the reminder oh great and tell me are you picking up any preliminary results um, yeah, so we had a paper published um, back in in um, uh, get the dates wrong now uh, April of twenty two. Um, I hope I got that right. Which is our first winter report, um, and that was showing things such as um, those people who haven't taken the vaccine are actually pretty healthy. I mean, that's that was a big thing. Um, that we are generally taking lots of supplements. Um, newer information is showing that so so some of the insights that we're getting out at the moment are showing that most of us have had COVID only the once the vast Mm. majority Um, there are a few people who've had it a couple of times but the vast majority just the once which is interesting because just anecdotally from friends and family we're seeing people who've who've had the vaccine um, getting it multiple times but that's just anecdotal that's not from our database Um, what we're starting to look at as well, because one of the things that we can do in our database is that when you log a health condition, say, for example, you've had a case of, of um, myocarditis or you've had um, a sore leg or anything, if you believe that is caused by something, so, for example, you believe it was caused by a vaccine, you believe it was caused by a medication, etc., you can choose to link the medication, supplement, vaccine to that health condition. Got it. 
So we're inviting the vaccinated on board as well with us. So this is going to be really important for them, but actually for everybody, um, just looking at, we, we've actually updated our database. So in September, we re- rewrote the whole thing and this ability to link um, treatments to health conditions is brand new. So it's only been in there since September. But even from there, we're starting to see that people have been putting in older vaccines that they've had and previous health conditions and linking the two, um, which is quite interesting for myself. I mean, in, in my particular one, I've got fibromyalgia and I do believe from research that it's it's due to the hepatitis B vaccine I had when I was 19. So, and I've seen several other people have marked that as, as well. So we're starting to build up a picture of what people believe is causing their problems. Now, obviously, not everything is caused by, you know, a, a, a treatment, but where it is, this could have massive implications in the future. Because I know personally that if you say you think something is caused by, say, for example, a, a vaccine, the doctors will usually say, oh, no, it's not. Mm. But we're listening to the people. So we are independent and we want to know what people believe is behind what they're suffering from. Now, obviously, COVID vaccines is the big thing that we're looking at. But going forward, what our database can show is correlations between any sort of treatment and mm. any sort of health condition, which could be really important. I'm sorry to do this, this is my ignorance, but I hear about fibro. Fibro. Yeah. What is that? <laughs> what is that? Oh, um, God, I don't really know how to explain it. I've had it for 20 odd years. 30 odd years even, um, it's it's an, an autoimmune disease. So they say, but then there are things that say it isn't. But basically it's widespread pain and oh uh, insomnia and things, but it's fine. I eat very healthy and, and you know, it's not a major problem for me. But for a lot of people, it is a major problem. And did you get that shortly after the um, hepatitis vaccine or sometime later? Yeah. Yes. Shortly about after. Six later. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. Isn't it terrible? Isn't it terrible? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And and what you were homeschooling your children? You've homeschooled your children. Yes. I have. Wonderful. Yes, wonderful. So you were a bit sitting outside the system to begin with. Yes, you could say that. <laughs> because I'm very interested. I can't detect um, a common. A common thing about people like us who totally skeptical of the COVID scare, totally appalled by the lockdowns, and shocked and distressed by the vaccine rollout, the mandates, and then family and neighbours attacking you because you haven't taken this medication. And then being a second-class citizen who's attacked nightly on the news for causing Nana to die. Yeah. And the people that stood outside that, I don't detect here in New Zealand a common element. Do you know what I mean? I, I have do. You, have, have you figured that out? Um, I mean, it's it's the question, actually, We I think we all ask ourselves all the time, why why didn't I go along with it? I wonder if a lot of us are quite inquisitive people mm. and we, we look deeper into things than maybe we're supposed to. Yeah, because it's across the political spectrum. It really it, is. 
it, it's religious groups, it's vegetarians, it's um, crazy communists. Mm-hmm. And um, because, likewise, I struggled to understand those that went along with it. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? I, I can't understand. I We've all had the experience of having very close friends who were philosophically in agreement on everything and got along with well, and they just fell into the stuff like it was having breakfast. And I'm looking at them and thinking, do you begin to understand what's going on around you? It was, and, and again, I can't explain it. Yeah, I, I know an awful lot of people had no choice and I have great empathy for those people mm. it just I mean you know I was in a lucky position I'm I was home educating my kids um I worked for myself you know I didn't have a lot of the challenges and I'm in the UK in other countries there are so many other challenges and you know just to be able to live a normal life people had to submit to it and I've heard some awful stories of people who who really didn't want to but they had no other way of putting food on the table so I think a very large proportion of people really felt that they had no choice. Um, there are obviously other people who were, you know, very keen to take this. Um, and that's, you know, a, a totally different mentality. Um, you know, it's I, I think it's so different for each and every person with this. And and it's 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 an incredibly hard thing. Um, and it's it's hard, it is hard when you are incredibly stubborn and incre- incredibly staunchly against this. And you stood the line and, and you know, you've, you've whatever it takes, I'm not doing this, to then talk to other people who've, who've just gone along with it. But you, unless you stand in someone else's shoes, I think we can't, we can't really understand what it's like for them. Well, you're very magnanimous because um, the people that foisted this on us and even friends and family who we have a phrase dish dissed you. I don't know if you have that phrase, but you know, who were nasty. Yeah. I, I there were a lot of people who had to take the vaccine and mm. I feel for them. But there were a lot of people who were finger wagging and yeah. rude and truly disgusting towards yeah. us. And I'm struggling in my heart to forgive them. Yeah, I, I, I get where you're coming from. And I mean, I'm lucky I, I wasn't, well, I, I did have some actually, I did have a couple of instances. I've got friends who lost all their friends and, and mm. yeah, it, it's been it's been horrific, but it was born out of deep fear, like a, an incredible terror that that people, I think people genuinely believe that we were going to kill them. And when you're in that place, I guess you do everything you can to protect yourself, you know, even if it's it's keeping those people at distance. I, I struggle to understand it, but I really, I really make myself try and understand their perspective because the governments did an amazing job on all of us. Well, not they all did, of us. They did an know. amazing job. It yeah, was incredible. astonishing. Yeah. And we were it, the lucky ones to not fall for it, I think I feel. The rollout, if you planned a psychological operation of what occurred and Mm. you had, when you look back on it, it was extraordinary. And I guess 
what made me lucky was I don't um, watch TV or listen to the radio. And so I find if you're reading, so I'd always read the headlines and scan yeah. stuff. It's not as, you're not as manipulated. Obviously, you're manipulated because you're getting the headlines. Yeah. But I think it was those images, those images that put the fear into people. And I remember one night watching TV and being shocked. And thinking, now I get it because these TV images, this several minutes of fear that was pumped into it, it was it was extraordinary to me. And does it not explain history now? Like you look back in history and you couldn't understand why the German people could become nutty, or we could be all putting out and there's a witch, let's you know, let's burn her at the stake. And suddenly you see this happening in your own society. And it's that extraordinary thing is where people are doing the despicable behaviors, thinking it's a good thing for the good of society or, you know, or to protect someone. You can get them, to, if you scare them, you can get them to do anything. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, and it's terrifying. It really is. We followed the UK. <laughs> we follow the UK and all things in the United States. Um, we look at what's happening there, but the UK and Professor Ferguson had a <laughs> huge impact in the UK and the US and then down here in New Zealand, which is extraordinary that one person in a stupid model could have this effect. And you had all these sober people saying, no, hang on, hang on, hang on. No, no, it didn't matter. Um, where do you think, and we read, Often the British newspapers, yeah, our own our own papers are particularly bad. We can sort of read about the UK and not get so upset. So we keep familiar here in New Zealand with what's happening in the UK. What do you think the thinking is among the general population now, looking back? Um, I I see. Well, it depends which camp you're looking at. I mean, the the everyday people. They, I think they're not looking backwards. I think they're just looking forwards. Well, actually, I don't think they're even looking forwards. I think they're just looking down at their feet, getting on with life. Um, there's not a lot of looking forwards with people and not a lot of looking backwards. For people like us, I think I think we're tearing our hair out trying to, to work out exactly where exactly this came from because we're inquisitive people and we want to know who started it, why was it started, what was the aim, and we're forever trying to... to unravel what you know this whole covid puzzle mm. um, so i think it probably drives an awful lot of us mad trying to work out exactly who who did this and why because um, if you have vaccinated say your children mm. you actually have to have a cognitive dissonance just to get through the day you can't 100%, yeah you can't stand the thought that you might have hurt them but i think most people who have don't know that there's any problem. I mean, talking to to you know people outside of of this you know my 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 new sphere, they don't know that there's an issue. They it's haven't amazing. heard. Yeah, just I mean, we think it's obvious. We hear that all the stuff coming out of New Zealand, you know, the mm. leaked data. We assume everybody's hearing it. They're not. We're hearing it. People outside are just getting on with their everyday lives. COVID was a thing. It was necessary. They're moving on with, with whatever. It, it's people like us who are going mad, trying to understand it, trying to save everybody else from from suffering. 
it's it's a very difficult position to be in, I think. Yes. The COVID inquiry that you have over there has been a flop. Yeah. Well, I don't know. They might think it's been great because basically I think the main thing that's come out of it is we should have locked down sooner and harder. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. And anyone that tries to discuss um, some cost um, or the cost versus the benefits, shut down. Even the prime minister gets shut down. Yeah. And the inquiry. I mean, that in itself is extraordinary. We're interested in that because we've just had a general election. And there's been a, a change of government, and we have a, a thing called MMP, which, by the way, never, never, never support in the UK. First past the post, I think, is a more accountable system. But it's worked to our advantage, the control group here, um, because we have our major conservative party, which mm-hmm. is uh, like your, uh, is called the National Party. It's to the well left of your conservative party. And then we have two smaller parties, one called ACT and one called uh, New Zealand First. And New Zealand First has re-entered Parliament and they have pushed to extend and expand the inquiry that was destined to be the equivalent of your British one, that is to say a total whitewash. Uh, They're promising to extend it. Now, the nature of that we don't know. For example, they should actually sack uh, the Royal Commission that's been set up and start again because the Royal Commission was stacked with stooges for the government, obviously. Mm-hmm. Um, so where New Zealand could be very interesting, plus we have, as you say, the whistleblower, the Barry Young data, yeah. which is um, shot around the world, and here in New Zealand um, doesn't exist as a story in the legacy media. Right. Other than, oh, some conspiracy theorist working in the health department stole some data and is being charged and will probably go to jail. That's the story that runs in New Zealand. And he's done misinformation and the vaccine is safe and effective and quickly have your booster. Yeah. It's not in our legacy media either. It's, a, it's only in the alternative media. And so we're watching two movies play, aren't we? Mm-hmm. Where we in the control group, I like that phrase, I'm going to be in the control group now. I'm going to have to sign up. We mm-hmm. in the control, control group see one movie, follow our media, listen to our friends and associates, mm-hmm. communicate online, read um, all the same experts, read all the same analysis, The non-control group are in a different movie where they're reading the legacy media, not too bothered by this. It was a thing that's been done and dusted. And we have become two divided tribes. Yeah. It's almost like we live in a parallel universe. Just just walking about in town, you you often feel that you are you're there, but not part of it. It's it's and I've talked to other people who've, who've got the exact same feeling that they're kind of in a different reality to, to a lot of their friends. It's very odd. I'm talking to Dinny Van Cleef. Dinny? Diny, Dinny. Dinny. Tell me, please. Dinny. Dinny mm-hmm. Van Cleef. And um, she's in England. She's uh, the driver behind the control group. 
did you, when you set up the control group, come under government attention? Um, I'd like to say that we've not really had too much attention, from, well, not really had any attention from them at all that I know of. Um, and I think because we were a grassroots organisation, um, not, I don't know, I guess not really bothering anyone too much. Um, the one thing that did happen, actually, PayPal shut us down. They closed our account, stopped our ability to take um, to take funding. So that, I, I, I presume that was instigated by government. Maybe it was, yeah, maybe I'm, I'm inflating, you know, importance. Maybe it was just they didn't like us. Um, but no, we've we've been okay so far. We did come under attack from the Canadian government um, because our cards were working rather too well there. Um, so they had to put out some uh, some information in, in their government travel information to say that the card, although we are a legitimate study, um, and the card is a membership card, it wasn't to be used as uh, an exemption. So that was interesting. Well, the mothership of Great Britain seems a lot healthier state than the commonwealth countries like canada australia and new zealand yes because we've had a terrible time in that respect i'll give you one example i didn't believe uh, you know my naivety shocks me i did not believe that the government would be tipping the scales for facebook twitter um google searches and YouTube, if you said certain words, it would be banned. That just seemed to me to be preposterous. And someone had had too much Kool-Aid and gone down too deep a conspiracy hole. Of course, we now know the extent to which they were doing that. But picture this. We have a wonderful woman here called Linda Wharton, who set up a New Zealand Health Forum. She set up a Facebook page that grew and grew and grew. And it was for the people that had... Um, vaccine injuries yeah she had fifty thousand members excuse me wonderful wonderful caring woman our government wrote to facebook and shut it down mm. yeah it's i mean um so i can't begin to get my head she wasn't pushing any conspiracy theories if you know what I mean. I mean, she was just being a forum yeah, for people who felt, let's say they were wrong, mm -hmm. right? That were sick and were attributing their sickness to the vaccine and were talking to each other and helping each other. There were doctors on there giving advice and the government shut it down and mm -hmm. Facebook went along with it. Again, this is just unfathomable, the, the, the enormity of this. Tell me, in the UK, you mentioned this, that people have come on board to the control group for vaccine injured. So they've had the vaccine, yeah. and they're now reporting to this group their injuries. What's the status of someone who's vaccine injured in the UK? Um, do, do you mean how are they how are they seen? Yes, how is the government attending to them? I I think it's pretty much like in all the other countries um, that they are pretty much ignored, told it's not an injury, and I believe from from what I've seen anecdotally, 
um, have to find alternative um, ways of getting around it, like long COVID. This is this is only sort of you know what I've seen people say, but yes, um, because with- nothing's nothing's being reported. Uh, no, absolutely, it is it is not in any way being being put out there as as a thing. You know, it's 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 COVID or it's something else or it's you're crazy. Um, yeah, it's it's not being acknowledged at all. Chilling, isn't it? What what do you think? Because I figure you're ahead of us in terms of the rollout of these things or the the trajectory. What do you think happens now? Um, in in respect of what, (laughs) which bit of this uh, myriad of uh, well things we've had the whole pandemic yeah and it's never been acknowledged or analyzed or accepted the vast majority of the population think there might have been some mistakes but in general the the direction was correct do we continue to see pandemics and lockdowns and more and more vaccines I personally, I I see another pandemic coming. Um, a lot of people, I think yes. a lot of us are waiting for the next one because it's going to be bigger, apparently. Um, the vaccines, I I mean, we've got all the, the, the World Health Organization wanting to push and mandate vaccines. I see that they're going to be trying to push vaccines. They're continuing to say how good they are. And, and that there are all sorts of different narratives coming out that, that, are just pushing towards vaccination being necessary for, for not just COVID, but for all sorts of other things. And I think what we're going to be seeing is people revisiting things like the MMR and saying, well, if you haven't had this, then you're a danger to society. And I I, I don't see this, this going terribly positively. Um, there are lots of us fighting back, but I think there's a general apathy in those people fighting back because we're tired, we're exhausted, we just want to get on with living our lives. But we're terrified because of our children and our children's children. So it's I think I think we're in for just a very confusing, difficult time, and more things are going to be thrown at us. And this but- is why the control group and our radio station, and we've got a big group here called Voices for Freedom. Mm-hmm. This is why these groups are so important. Because when we got hit the first time. We were isolated. Yeah. We just felt alone. I felt desperately alone with my family. Yes. Uh, yeah. My family were all on board. Thank God. I don't know how I would have survived. I was on the edge, just bewildered, bewildered and befuddled, yeah. wandering around, standing on the yellow spot, waiting in the rain outside the supermarket for someone to leave so the next person could get into the supermarket with their mask on. And just that sense of living in a dystopian movie. Mm. Um, But it's very important that we keep these groups alive because this is a lull. Yeah, I I agree. And the World Health Organization and our governments seem to be strengthened in their purposes of international binding decision-making, rules for pandemics, 
the control of free speech, uh, all these things are so much further advanced than they were just four years ago. Yeah, it's accelerated massively. How do you manage your group, given that there are so many and there is one of you? Have you a large team? Um, we haven't got, it's not a large team, but yes, we have a team. Um, we have uh, IT guys um, running the, the system. We have support staff answering the emails. Um, we have an office. I, I'm in the office at the moment. And it's freezing because the heating's not on. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> Um, yeah, we have um, online um, people mediating the many Telegram groups. We've got about uh, 35 different Telegram groups supporting people from around the world. So we have we have a lot of people. We have volunteer admins on those as well. Um, we have support chats. We we do all sorts of things, um, you know, to to look after our participants. A lot of participants are just there. They're not they're not needing us, not doing anything. During during the lockdowns, um, we did caring sharing zooms every week, and we had a lot of people coming to us. Um, people in tears, wanting support, hadn't been able to talk to anyone openly. Um, just needed, you know, to know that there are other people who had the same ideas as them, and that they, that they weren't crazy. Mm. um that's that's all slowed down a bit now but you know we can wrap that up again when it's necessary if it's necessary we had a general election um and we call it the freedom movement in new zealand i don't know if that's a a, a, an appropriate appellation but that's what we've done uh, from the protest and Mm. it went into different directions and so oh i don't know there were probably half a dozen little parties that formed Mm-hmm. Um, around people. Uh, I interviewed them all. They were all very pleasant, but they couldn't agree. They couldn't mm-hmm. get together. And in times, it became a little bitter because it was one group against another group. None of them none of them succeeded. Mm-hmm. New Zealand First is an old-time party that had been out of Parliament and actually probably got into Parliament uh, as, in large part, a reaction to the COVID pandemic, because this was this was the one party that was very clear on wanting a proper inquiry and calling it basically what happened uh, questionable. Mm-hmm. So they hoovered up the votes and the smaller parties withered on a vine. However, it was divisive uh, for the group. Uh, second of all, once you go down the conspiracy theorist route, mm-hmm. there's no bottom to it. <laughs> and so you find yourself questioning everything and mm-hmm. going a bit loopy. Yes. And you find this in your group. Yes. So it's quite hard to keep an organisation like yours and a radio station like ours grounded and not hysterical. Yeah, absolutely. Because at times I'm hysterical, you know. (laughs) How do you cope with that? Have you got advice for us on that? How do you, oh, that's, you know, if, if, if they would do that to us about a pandemic, I wonder what they would do about this. And, like, we're finding all the time getting gentle criticism because we're cautious. Yeah. I detect that you're cautious. Yes. Yeah. We have to be. I mean, we, we, 
so we have lots of um for example we have lots of talks we have people coming and talking um you know doing webinars on all sorts of different health things and that was under the control group but we we very much with the control group we we're a, a middle of the road um we are unbiased we, we're trying to show what is happening we're supporting those people who haven't taken the vaccine but we're trying to show what is happening we have talks on all sorts of interesting things that maybe some people don't agree with we've actually had to split that off now because um you know government could say that that's that um that that's incorrect that's misinformation which could damage the control group so really we well me personally I'm I'm of, of two parts. I'm the control group, and that is very much about the data and factual and unbiased. We're taking people's information. We're going to churn out results from that. If it shows that you know there's a, a, a deadly vaccine, it will show it. If it shows that there's a deadly virus that's killing all us all of us unvaccinated people, it will show that too. Um, so we try to be very careful and moderate in everything we do with that. And then we've got another aspect. Well, this this I've split it off now. So it's not part of the control group now. That is me um, on something called Fear Free Speakeasy, where I'm chatting to people about alternative health solutions, all the things that people are trying to keep themselves well, to get over COVID, to, um, to get over vaccine injuries, if they believe they've got that. Um, we've never gone down the route of other rabbit hole things. We've kept to health. Um that doesn't mean to say that the majority of us aren't looking at all those other things, but mm. you know, we 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 have to avoid things like you know, is the earth round or flat? Yes. Um, you know, uh, and you're you're a sellout um, because you're uh, trying to tell me it's round. <laughs> I do you know what? That's a rabbit hole. I won't go down. I like <laughs> the round earth, and I'm sticking with it for the moment yeah. because so many other things that I believed in have gone. I'm just going to stick to that one. Yeah. <laughs> Do you feel as though you have become through this process and running these groups a different person? Um, I started from an interesting standpoint because I was quite a conspiracy theorist before this. I write alien science fiction. That was I was a science fiction writer and, and um, creative writing teacher. So I came from already being a bit of a a, a weirdo, home educating my kids, um, questioning vaccines. I mean, they have had vaccines I stopped and and because I I went deeper so I've I was already on that route you were primed um, I, I was I've what's changed in me is that I've become much more purposeful with everything that I'm doing so before it was stuff I was interested in I believed it I lived my life in such a way that I was I was quite outside the system anyway um now I'm very outside the system and I, I'm speaking for other people. I mean, that's the biggest thing. I, I was always someone who was just, you know, getting on with what I was doing. I had very strong principles. Now I'm, you know, standing up, speaking for other people's principles and looking to support other people um, by talking about all of these things. So I've, I've very much put myself in a position that actually I'm not at all comfortable with. You know, I, I never envisaged myself talking around the world to all sorts of different people about my views on the alternative world and, and what's going wrong with it. It's, but I feel I have to, um, because the, I put myself. Yes. Um, by the way, I don't know what's happened, uh, in the UK. I haven't seen this. Um, obviously there are a couple of rebel rousers that the legacy media go over, go, go after, but here in New Zealand, 
small country, very parochial. It's like a, you know, small city for you. Mm-hmm. The legacy media came after anyone like you, yeah. made them front page news, labeled them conspiracy theorists, and attempted to destroy their lives and livelihood. Yeah. And in the last local body elections and the general election, if someone had been a member of Voices for Freedom, which is like the control group, the legacy media would out them in the front page news and say, this person is a member of this group and they're trying to infiltrate your council. Funny enough, we think they got more votes as a consequence. (laughs) (laughs) But um, have you suffered that? No, thankfully. I mean, initially we did have a few um, big press people contacting me um, and they wanted to do interviews. And, And luckily I had some great people around me who said, I think you maybe don't want to talk to them. So what I did, I I had telephone conversations with them pre-interview and and just explained exactly what the control group was. And because the control group is simply studying the data without taking a view on it, Mm. um, trying to tell us that our cards were illegal and that we're creating fake things. And and, and I said, and I explained that, no, it wasn't, it was a membership card. And if people choose to accept it, that's down to them, not to, to us. They actually, none of these people actually ran any of the interviews because I think they they realised that we were so moderate that if they did, it would actually end up like like yourself. Yes. It would be an advert. So, yeah, so I haven't yet. Um, and it terrifies me because the, uh, my children are all adult and, and older teenagers. And, I mean, they, they completely are on board with all of this, but they're all getting on with their lives in realms where they can't speak out about. Yes. What's going on? And and they live in fear that someone's going to find out who their mum is. Yes. Isn't it's, that isn't that a shocking thought? That yeah. you have to feel like that even while supposedly enjoying free speech. Yeah. Um alternative health has mm. exploded here in New Zealand. Yes, here too. Because I don't feel I have no trust in my GP. Yeah, zero. If I broke my leg, I'd go along there and he could fix it. Mm -hmm. If I'm bleeding profusely, he could bandage me. But for general health, this is a a guy who will run the government line cynically without question. So I have no faith in the whole – I see it now – as a whole charade, charade. I never saw that before. Yeah, I, I was, I I mean, I'm, I'm a doctor avoider and my children have rarely been to the doctors um, and we do, we try to do everything naturally. And so many more people are doing that. We're seeing the, the medical services as being a last port of call if mm. all else fails. Um, 
Yeah, I mean, that's that's definitely got a much, much stronger here. So many people are looking to people like us and, and um, you've got the World Council for Health who are doing amazing things on educating people in, in alternatives and, and what's available and loads of other people as well. And we're all becoming experts in ourselves. And I think what this has done in a good way, all of this, is it's made a lot of people stop and say, I've got to take responsibility for my mm. own health not about going and getting a quick fix. It's about keeping myself well rather than getting well from something later down the line. And I think that's actually been quite a good thing. If anything, if we can find anything good from all of this, it's it's people take starting to take full responsibility for their own health and that of their children. So yeah, it's if we can find a positive somewhere. Well, it's a great message. And um, we never want to be like we were when this first hit, bewildered and befuddled and alone and desperate about uh, what's going to happen next. My big fear through the process became here in New Zealand, I live in a little town that should be peaceful, beyond beyond madness. And my fear became that the vaccination van would pull up at the school and the kids would be just marched into it because my kids took a tough time because um, I spoke out, and so this community knew that my children weren't vaccinated, and they would be excluded by their friends. They couldn't have playdates. They couldn't go visiting their friends. My fear was that they would literally start coming door to door to vaccinate our kids, and I felt um, ill-prepared for such a situation. I can promise you I'm not now because I've talked to so many people, people like you, I feel fortified. I'm going to join the control group. We want to have the uh, control group page read out again so you can get New Zealanders representative. How do we join the control group? It's www.controlgroup.coop, C-O-O-P. Dot com or just dot? No, no, dot .coop. Dot .coop. Oh, I see. How clever. Um, we're talking to Dini Van Cleef. Say your name, please. Dini. Dini. Dini Van Cleef. Dini Van Cleef. L- l- listeners are well used to me mangling names. It's a um, hereditary disease. I have something I'm verbally dyspraxic. Dini. So I, I'm not at all trying to be rude. Um, we wish it. you all the very best. We hope that you get the power, the the heat on in your office. Uh, <laughs> thank you for coming in to us. Uh, you're you. on Reality Check Radio. We've been talking to the control group. Become a member. You're on Reality Check Radio, Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. Send us a text at 2057. Email us at inbox at radio. And I'm going to look forward to getting those monthly reports. Check out our brand new RCR Foundation Members Club. Go to www.realitycheck.radio members and join now. You're on Reality Check Radio, Real Talk with Rodney Hype. Oh my goodness, when I was an MP, one of my favourite places to visit was Mount Hobson Middle School, which was right in the heart of Epsom, right in the heart of Remuer, and it was one run by Alwyn Paul and his wife, Karen, I think I've got the name right. Yes, Karen. Yes, yes. And it was a wonderful school. Well, when COVID came along, 
they started an online school. Now, think about this. So many of us want to homeschool our children, but we're a bit scared. And so there's an online school that sort of a halfway house and can hold your hand. And we're so lucky because we've got the principal of the online school joining us. Syrah, have I got that right, Boyle? You have. You have. Perfect. Where does Syrah come from? It's actually an Arabic name. My father is from Pakistan and my mum's British. How wonderful. Thank you. And you grew up in Britain? Yes, I did. I grew up in the um the northeast of the um of England and how long ago? In 2004, we packed up and um took our children. We had two children and I was pregnant with a third and we decided to have an adventure and we took a caravan around Europe and we stayed in France for a little while and then when the third um, child was 10 months old, we decided to move to New Zealand. And part of the reason for that was because I'd heard so many amazing things about the education system in New Zealand. And it was- Well, I hope you real, weren't disappointed. It was a bold, no, I wasn't. I wasn't. I was actually really oh, impressed with the, the creativity that um, can be afforded in our schools in New Zealand. And um, oh my goodness, well, I can see you that the listeners don't have the benefit of that. And you look so youthful to have children. Oh my goodness, that long ago. <laughs> Tell me, it's just a good. You're, I don't think of Pakistan as an Arabic country. No, it's not generally, but that's where the name comes from. That's the, I that, see. the name, Arabic name, yeah. Sarah, how wonderful. Are your mum and dad still with us? Yes, they are. They are. They're in England. How wonderful. Oh my goodness. Now, tell us the name of your school. So the school is Mount Hobson Academy. And as you said in the introduction, the school has been around a number of years and it's morphed and changed over the years. And um, more recently, when I joined the school or I was sort of becoming interested in joining the school towards the end of 2021, there was an online um, part of the school that was being opened, but also there was the on-site part of the school that was in the heart of the city. And um I've been with the school two years now, and it's moving into 2024. We will be 100% online. My goodness. I have to tell listeners about um, Mount Hobson Middle School as I knew it. It was in a house. Alwyn and his wife would teach there. And yes. I was went there, and I met an, a colleague from former years that I hadn't seen for years, for, year, for years. And we were so excited to see each other that we went off to have a coffee. And I said, tell me about this school. Her son had been labelled a dunce. Mm. And um, stupid and wasn't doing at all well at school. And she got, you know, like mothers do when your son is getting badly labelled. Mm -hmm. She got her feathers in a twist and enrolled him at some considerable difficulty financially at Mount Hobson Middle School, he was top student there. Yes, yes. To me, to me, that is earth-shattering. Mm. That he was this kid, so good, sitting in a school labelled stupid, goes off to a different school, absolutely thrived didn't just flourish became number one lovely lovely kid oh my mm. goodness that would be 20 years ago now you know he'll be doing something amazing 
So it was a, it, it's it's amazing what can happen to in a school for our children. Definitely, M- most certainly, and that's something that is really um, it's been a passion of mine to make sure that all students are able to access the curriculum and to thrive in in ways um, that suit them. And I've been in education. Um, I think over 26 years now or around 26 years in the UK and in New Zealand, in primary and in secondary. I'm secondary trained, but my um, two principalships before Mount Hobson were in primary schools. And one of the things that was becoming notably more clear to me was the fact that the system the system I love, I love the system. I don't want to, um, you know, downgrade or put down the school system, but there is something about the system and the way our kids are developing nowadays that doesn't align well for all students. Mm. And there are so many students, a growing number of students, Rodney, who um, have beautiful brains, really clever kids, but for some reason, it's really difficult for them to be able to present what they're capable of in Mm. in the regular school Mm. system. And that's one of the things that I absolutely love about Mount Hobson Academy and the fact that I've had the opportunity to lead in a different school, in a school that's online and set up in a a different way, because I can see there is a need for something um, different for many, many students and um, just the results from our students, as well as seeing their confidence grow is evidence that there is something different needed now. You may be able to help us because we've had teachers and principals on our show and we have bad-mouthed our school system and our curriculum and said it's not doing a good job in the basics of reading, writing and arithmetic. And we've compared it and we get this commonly from friends and relatives to the UK, where the kids seem to be well advanced of here in New Zealand. Mm. And then we've had principals and teachers come on who have taught in England and they've come back here and said, oh my gosh, we're so far behind. And yet here you are saying how wonderful it is to be teaching in New Zealand and what a great system it is. I imagine this is a contest of philosophies of teaching, is it? What? What? Why do you think that? And the common feel amongst parents is that we're slipping behind the UK. Yeah, I think uh, it's a challenging discussion point because I think it's hard to generalise. And I also think having lived in the UK for most of my life and then having lived in New Zealand for around 20 years now, um, the culture of the country and what we deem as important for people is very different from, you know, we're both English speaking countries, but the culture of the country is very different in mm. terms of how we operate. And therefore, when I first got here with my young children, I did think, um, yikes, the kids are not going to be pushed as hard. They're not going to be um, studying as much or at as high a level. And when I was teaching um, students in the UK compared to when I was teaching students here, then they were older in terms of what I was covering here with what I would cover in the UK. But then, it, you know, having observed the system for a number of years from the inside, I could also see that 
New Zealand places a huge emphasis, and I, I don't know whether England does this now because I haven't been there for a while, but I can see that New Zealand places a huge emphasis on the whole child and developing across um, a holistic approach. And when I first was in New Zealand schools, it took me a little while to actually be able to observe and notice that. But then I could see the huge benefits that came from that because I'd be working with younger, with younger colleagues who had amazing confidence and could speak beautifully and um, just had more of a wholesome, rounded approach than the competitive approach that I'd experienced in the UK. However, I would say that over the last 10 years or so, um, there has been maybe a de- like a decline, I suppose, in the number of students achieving in the core subjects um, and an increase in the number of learners with specific needs. And I, like I, I personally put that down to, I think there's a lot of pressure being put on our teachers and the, the role of the teacher seems to be growing and growing and growing, which means teaching and learning in those core areas is not the key priority. It's being spread across, which is stretching our teachers and putting a lot of pressure and stress on our teachers. And that is bound to have an impact, I think. There must be, too, such a diversity in family life and parenting approaches that teachers are having to deal with. I mean, there are some highly dysfunctional families and and they tend to congregate in you know communities and therefore schools. Uh, there are parents who seem to be too busy to particularly look after their kids and sort of throw money their way at the other end. And then there, there are parents who are really intense with kids. I observe all this because I've now got primary school age uh, kids. Yes. And I'm sort of astonished. You know, you go and watch a game of nine-year-olds playing rugby and it's like an all-black test for some of these parents, right? (laughs) And I sort of feel for teachers because, you know, they expect Johnny and Mary to be top of the class and heading off to university and being Albert Einstein. And they have such a high expectation of their kids' achievement, you know, when obviously most kids settle around the average. You know what I mean? So across this, when I was growing up in the 60s, it was more monocultural, more mono view. Everyone was pretty much the same. Mm. And compared to now, so you're dealing with a lot of family background and family situations when the kids turn up to school, right? Mm. Yes, most certainly. And I think... I have empathy for parents because obviously I've got my own three children who've had their, um, you know, successes and challenges in education. And I was one of those parents who was really pushy and constantly knocking on the door and advocating for my kids. So to be honest, Rodney, I I welcome that. And I say to any new parents, whether it was in my on-site school or the um, online school, you are the advocate for your child. And it's really important that you do speak out because quite often it might be a minor little thing that then is not dealt with or it drags on and on and on. So it becomes a bigger thing and a bigger worry for parents. I think Mm. parents are under a lot of pressure because, you know, with the cost of living there, most families, both of the adults are out working. 
Um, yes. And they're juggling childcare, juggling school, trying to be the best parents they can possibly be. And um, I think parent partnership in schools is really important. But I think the online school in particular has given us a real amazing platform to be able to partner really authentically with our families because every day we are in their lounge or dining room or sometimes in the kids' bedrooms and they're yeah. in our homes too. And, you know, it it's not well, very tell often. Us, tell us about the school because I'm so excited about it and I was just getting that sort of throat clearing out of the way of who yes. we are and your philosophy, but this yeah. school sounds so exciting. And someone emailed me through the radio station and said, you know, it's been so amazing because their daughter is, I think it was a daughter, was in the online school and has friends all over New Zealand yes. and goes and visits them. Yeah, yeah. It's and, it, so tell me how you set it up, how it runs, how it works, what it costs, uh, the pitfalls, the pluses. You just give your best explanation and I'll shut up. <laughs> Thank you. You can interrupt and ask questions whenever you like. But um, it's I've been blown away by um, the opportunities that the online school has given to children. I think I, I kind of I came into it serendipitously. I wasn't looking for um a change from the on-site school so i just want to get that really clear because it's not that i'm some real tech um you know techie person who's promoting online or anything like that i was given an opportunity at a time that i needed to do something different and came into the online space and my only other experience of education in the online space was that of lockdown learning and that mm. wasn't something that I particularly um, enjoyed. We made it work and we did well for our kids, but it wasn't something that had sort of was a passion of mine. And um, being in school with kids was and supporting staff to teach the kids well was where my heart sat. So I came into this online space and was a little bit sort of, you know, wondering, well, how will this work? Will it work well? And honestly, I, I'm absolutely astounded with how well it does work for our students and um, the fact that there are more and more students in our schools who could benefit from something like this. So we have two arms of the school. The first arm of the school is the teacher-led arm of the school, and that's where students are in classrooms online. We use um, Microsoft 365 and we use Teams as a platform. And so the kids have a timetable and they come online every day. And for different subjects, they're in different classes with different subject specialist teachers. We've got really great quality staff who um, really care about one another. They care about the school and they, most importantly, they care about the students and their learning. Um, before lunchtime, there are four blocks of learning for the students three of which will be in a core a subject, in a curriculum subject area, and one is an independent project time, so they get some time away from the screen to work on their projects. We make sure that we do have brain breaks in between each um, class so that, again, we're focusing on making sure that students get up and move away from the screen. And, um, you know, we teach them about well-being. We teach them about how to manage their time and manage their screen time and their wellness and so on. Um, we have a project-based curriculum, which means um, all of the students study from year one to 10. They study projects every term. 
And those projects are designed amazingly based on really good quality um, education theory. And what I see is that the combination of the students being online and studying with our projects means that learners as young as um, eight, nine, ten-year-old learners are really taking, they're taking ownership of their own learning. They manage their timetable really well. They're managing their time well. They manage um, their work output because they we use our platform to turn in their work. So ed, ed, all their work is done digitally. Some of it they might want to handwrite work or um, do something practically, and they'll take photographs for the teacher and put that on a digital um, mm-hmm. a digital platform to to turn that into us. So. I've noticed that because the teacher is not in the room with the students, the students have to step up and they do step up. So they're not mollycoddled as much. You know, they're really, they're stretched and they really rise to the occasion, which is amazing. I I actually teach um, nine blocks a week. So firsthand as a principal and a teacher um, in the school, I know that it really works. The other thing that I think is fabulous for the students is, we keep our class sizes under 15. Obviously, we're in a growth phase of the school. So, you know, we have to make sure that um, we're balancing resources and, and our theory around keeping classes under 15. But every child feels like they're in the front row. Because as I'm talking to you here now via this Zoom meeting, I'm talking directly to you. And if there were another three people in the meeting, they would feel I was talking directly to them. And that's exactly how the students feel. They they form really good quality relationships with the teacher and with each other. So we um, because we're on teams, the students can message. So sometimes I might have a class where I have a more quiet student or a, a, um, a shyer student. And if I'm talking to them about sharing their learning, they can message me privately and ask a question. Mm. So mm. in a regular classroom, they have to put their hand up. They feel self-conscious. Mm. Also, a lot of the time, those quieter students don't put their hand up and then they tend to disappear into the background. In the online school, the, the students really take ownership and they they will message their teachers privately and you know say, oh, can you help me with this? And or, I suppose kids these days have quite good keyboard skills. They do. They do. And we see, you know, with some of the younger students, Rodney, when they come on board, they are slower with their typing and they are, it takes a little bit longer for them, but it amazes me how quickly they pick it up. So the 15 in a class maximum, which is amazing. Yes. The teachers themselves, they're at home, they're in their home. They are, yes, yeah, they are. They can and, teach anywhere, and the students can be. We've had students who have gone on family holidays. There was two wee boys who we've got their brothers. They're in the Gold Coast, and they have this beautiful hotel room with the window, the view of you know the coast. And they were sitting in the class. Te- their parents made sure they came to class in the morning. Wonderful. So yeah, so yes, we teach from home mostly, but you know, I might be teaching from somewhere else depending on where I am I've I've had meetings and things in Wellington previously and taught from the airport so there's there's real flexibility for the students the families and for the teachers around that but mostly from home and I suspect you may have had a good pool of teachers to draw from because teachers were mandated out of the schools if they refused <laughs> yes. the jab they, that's true and we, so as a result we had 
an excellent pool to draw from and high quality staff. Um, all of our teachers are amazing. They're committed. They have really taken on new learning with, you know, a steep new learning curve with them learning the online platforms and so on. But I'm working with an amazing team of people who I really, really value. Um, do the teachers like teaching online? Yes, they do. They do. Most certainly. Because it's different. It's it's very different to lockdown learning, which was a response to a, an emergency. This is planned, it's deliberate, and it's designed to engage learners. Um, and so I know, you know, we're constantly looking for ways to um, make it more exciting, make it more um, engaging, but they do, they're committed to the online approach for sure. When I was, I don't want to talk myself up here, but when I was Associate Minister of Education, I got shown around um, by the ministry and by the runners of the online school, the Exclusive Brethren's online school. Are you familiar with that? No, I'm not. No, I'm oh, not. How interesting. So this would be 2009, 10. And the Exclusive Brethren had long had an idea of setting up their own school system, but of course they were distributed around New Zealand. And um, oh my goodness, the Ministry of Education, they kept it a bit quiet, but they'd had a team that were working on how to do it online. Mm-hmm. And they helped them set it up. And, oh, my goodness, it was very funny because these businessmen ran it. They had no religious instruction in the school, by the way, and not one of the teachers or principals was a brethren because they mm-hmm. said we do our biblical studies at home. So it was completely secular. Yes. But what was amazing about it was these businessmen, and they had charts and graphs and um I had never come anything across anything like it in my life um, back in 2019. Um, I wonder how that's going. And here you are. Here we are so much further ahead with the technology and the understanding of it. And you're doing uh, likewise. Tell me, um, can, how young can a, a student enroll in this school? So we're from five-year-olds. In wow. year one. Yeah, in year one up to um year 13 so it's approximately 18 year olds so we like I said we, yes we do we do we've got an amazing junior teacher and she actually stayed at my house for a week um this year and I observed her teaching and I just I said it's outstanding I've never seen such amazing teaching the students are thoroughly engaged there's a beautiful partnership between the parents and the students and the school teacher, which shows me, I mean, all the theory in in education out there promotes parent partnership, the ministry promote parent partnership, and it it really does work, and we are seeing it work. Um, You know, many students in schools are are not engaged, and as we know, the attendance figures are are really sad for our young people at the moment. That's You know, the attendance is really low across New Zealand schools. We have really high attendance, really high engagement and um great parent partnership we we also um s- support the building of our relationships because every term we try to have um a, an opportunity for people to meet up or get together 
in person. Um, we have school camps and next year we're going to have community days so the community can actually get together and, as well and the parents can make connections. And it's lovely. We had we just had um, our prize giving last Thursday and a lot we had over 100 people gathered in Auckland for the prize giving to celebrate the learning that had taken place this year. But we also had the people who couldn't come to Auckland they zoomed in. Uh, they came in via Teams meetings, and it was it was such a beautiful celebration. And what my teachers often say to me when we get together like that, they stop and they say, "Just listen." And they love hearing the laughter and the kids, you know, just watching the kids connect. So, mm. a lot of parents when they call me cry. No, oh, my pa- the parents when they call to inquire about the school often say. Um, they ask lots of questions about curriculum and classes and how the school runs. But then usually the last question they ask is about social. You know, what about my child's social? And I say that I've learned for most children, this the on-site school works. But there are a growing number of children who it doesn't work for. And those young people often have their worst social experiences in school. And you yes. think, you know, as adults, we go to work and if, if we don't fit, we move, we go somewhere else. But for our kids, quite often they're stuck there and having to maneuver these challenging relationships. Now, what I've noticed with the online school, they create beautiful relationships in the online space. But then when they meet, it's like they're meeting a long lost friend or a long lost family mm. member. They just mm. connect so so marvelously. It's it's lovely to see. And even I suppose even us as staff, when we get together with our colleagues, you know, there's lots of hugs and celebration of being together. And at the end of one of our camps, I asked a few different students when I was sort of talking to them um, about what they prefer in the online space. And one of our young boys who was probably 12 at the time said to me he preferred the online school because um because they don't see each other all day every day when they do connect they're more respectful of each other and they get along better which i thought was marvelous coming from one of the students another student who was in year 10 another boy actually said to me he preferred the online school because there was less time wasted he could literally wake up you know, open up his laptop, sitting in bed, eating his breakfast, and he's straight into class. And there's there's not all of the extras that can often happen in um, you know, your regular school. And stressful and getting kids, kids like that. Getting kids to school can be stressful. Yes, yeah. My God, I know that. Now, you said that they have these floor blocks in the morning. Yes. What happens in the afternoon? Is that it, the four blocks? No, 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 no. In the afternoon, they also, so in the morning, it's from the um, the course curriculum subject areas. And in the afternoons, they um, have health and PE. They have art lessons. Um, and they also have music lessons. There's also no for one. You can yeah, learn music. You can learn music on Zoom. Yes, yeah. And art, yes. I can't imagine yes. it. It's beautiful. Some of, the, some of the music and the art that's produced is outstanding. We also have a block in the afternoon, which is a community service block. So um, students are expected to give back in their local community. And we've had some students doing some amazing things like volunteering in um, hospices or volunteering in um, writing for the disabled, for example, or just simple things like in their own 
you know, their home for the younger students. We also mm-hmm. have a community learning block. And the community learning block is where if the project that the student's studying is based around architecture, we might get an architect to come in and speak to the students about what it's like firsthand. So um, it's it's really varied in the afternoons. We also have students who um, are really passionate about certain things. So we've got students who are passionate about horse riding, students who are passionate about mountain biking. And so we give them opportunities in that afternoon time to fulfill their passion if that's when their clubs and so on are running things so they can mm. have flexibility around passion in the in the afternoon appearance varied are some parents hovering in the background um um steering over their son or daughter's shoulder looking online to what's happening and are there some parents who literally throw johnny in the room and shut the door and head off to work for the day um i i think life is varied and it's varied for our parents at mount hobson as well for the younger students um there tends to be a parent sitting just off screen who will sometimes you know ask a question if this if the child needs help but what we're doing is trying to grow the independence of the young person so the parent might be there to help them if they have to change platforms for example from a reading platform to a maths platform and they're not sure how to manipulate that at the age of six or seven or eight but as the student becomes more independent you can see that the parents back off a little bit more and you might just see a parent walk past the door you know behind Mm. student Mm. but you know that they're there for our older students sometimes parents are at work and but they still have close partnership with us in terms of you know the the teacher contacting to make sure that everything's okay We can also, we have a cameras on policy. So all students, whether they're in year one or year 13, they have to have their cameras on. And we expect a level of engagement and we we communicate really closely with parents if we feel like that engagement could be better. And Mm. usually usually it's improved. I don't know if you can hear my puppy in the background. (laughs) Yeah, we can, but it's lovely. (laughs) Tell me, what is the typical reason for parents choosing to school online or number or the reasons and what's the sort of profile of the students like uh, they're obviously not going to be like everyday students so tell me about that well surprisingly they are it's lovely and it's refreshing we we um we have a wide variety of reasons so there may be um young people whose parents don't want them in the state school and want to opt out and have a private education and something a little bit more alternative. We have students who live rurally and they want a quality education. So they've chosen our school because they don't have to travel or put their stu- put their young people in boarding to be able to come to our school. They can be still be at home rural. Um, it may be that um, parents are... Um, I'm trying to think what else so I've said and um, it could also be that parents I've gone blank sorry well I can <laughs> no. tell you I would come I, to, it's come back. I would come to you as a parent and I would say I've headed up to here <laughs> there's a bit of that transgenderism being stuffed down my kids throats when I don't think it's true 
I think sex is a real binary thing. I understand all the funny things that we can do as human beings, but this trans, this idea that you identify as a boy or a girl to me is insane. And I think it's destroying of kids. I'm also sick to the back teeth of endless Maori. I think it's a wonderful culture. I think it's indigenous culture. I think it's very important to study it. But I'm sick of it being like 50% of what my kids do. Now, they would be my concerns for why I would homeschool and why I would choose an online school. Tell me, would you rescue me from those two things? <laughs> it's very political. Um, we do. We some of our families have those um, issues with school and the system, and they're very happy at Mount Hobson Academy. Right. We also have um, students who may not have been confident at school, or they've lost their confidence, and we also have students who have anxiety and those students come to us and they really grow and flourish some of whom have actually gone back into the regular system and yeah it is and for us we were sad to lose those students and we're always sad to lose and um, those students but it's also a great win because it shows that we've done something really amazing to build them mm. and allow them mm. to go off and explore so it could mm. be um, students who are non-attenders we also have students with neurodiverse needs so students who may have um autism or um other other specific needs that in a larger classroom with a large stimulus it's really challenging for them to be able to focus on their learning and so um those students often do very very well in the online space now you said at the start i believe that there were two ways are going about this is there a sort of second area that the online school does or did i misunderstand no there is sorry i didn't finish that bit off so we've got the teacher-led side of the school and then we've got the parent-led side of the school and that's more like the hybrid between homeschool and schooling so ah. if you're in the parent-led side of the school we will provide the project-based curriculum the parent-led side of the school only goes to year 10 and that's where the parents are supported um, with an academic manager who is a registered teacher, and she supports them to unpack our curriculum, to teach the students, and to look at what the outcomes are that they're producing and to help with the assessment and so on. So that's like I've decided to homeschool, but I don't know where to start. Yes. And I enroll and I get that hand-holding and you walk me through the curriculum and send me through the resources. Yes, yes, exactly. How wonderful. Yeah. Now, is it rude in a public forum to ask you how much this would cost me? Not at all. Not at all. Our um for the older students, it's ten thousand a year in the teacher led, and for um the parent led side of the school, it's three thousand dollars at the moment. And the younger ones are cheaper or dearer? Uh, a little bit cheaper. Yeah. So ten thousand and four thousand. Did I hear that correctly? Three, ten, three. and three. Yeah, ten and that's and three. for oh, wow. high quality. Yeah, high quality private education. It's pretty competitive. Yes, it's very competitive for older kids, and um, and you don't have to buy a uniform. That's right, or travel. Yeah, travel as well, and do all those other things. Yeah. Um, 
So is there a discount if you have lots and lots of kids? There is a discount if there are more children from one family, yes. How wonderful. Have you had kids that you've had to expel? No. <laughs> no. Is they come right? They, yeah, they, they they come to school, they're engaged, they're happy. Is you know, that we, true? Yeah, young people are young people. We might need to remind them to put the camera on. We might need to remind them, um, you know, to – well, that's about it, really. I'm thinking – reminding them to put the camera on is usually – and um, you know, sometimes with some of the younger students, we remind them to be respectful of one another. But they're they're actually amazing. You, I was astounded to see how quickly the students adapted to being online. And I think it's their world. I really do. It's 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 part of their world. It's how they live. It's how they operate. It's very normal for them. I think it's more the older people like ourselves who find it intriguing or or different because it's not how we've been raised you know they mm. they use the online space for so many things that it's actually quite normal for them to just have their teaching and learning online too you know sometimes mm. we do yoga sometimes we do different kinds of exercises with them so there's we do meditation online there's lots and lots of really fun things that we do oh it's so exciting um how does it go you've got 15 students and some of the kids that are coming in there are going to be kids that school didn't fit because they're very, very, very bright. Actually, like yeah. my friend's uh, son, who was the dunce at his school until he hit yes. Hobson. Um, and then you're going to have kids that are actually genuinely slow and struggle. Mm -hmm. How does that work for the pace of the teaching in a class of 15? Yeah, I, it's, again, I don't want to sound like so positive, but it, it, the, the one of the classes that I teach have students exactly as you've described in there. And what I've noticed is we have not um, put students into groups, like we haven't grouped them according to ability. We haven't... Um, sort of label them in terms of where they're at and because they're studying the project-based curriculum I've noticed that it's it the the way the the way the projects are designed all students can be stretched and there are some students in my class who I think if they were at a regular school they might get lost in the system or they might have to go for um extra support and so on and then they start to self-fulfill that prophecy but because they're in the online space and they're looking at the projects which are fast-paced they know they've got a certain length of time to complete their projects the teachers help them through it and um, they also have a an assessment rubric which we teach them how to use from year five upwards now these are assessment rubrics that a lot of students only get to look at when they get to nca level and they're looking at the rubrics for their um their credits the students become um, full of self-belief. And because they're full of self-belief, they are achieving more. Mm. And we've got parents who are telling us this, that their young people are learning more, learning faster and more engaged than they have been previously. So in terms of the pace, we stick to the pace in, for, to deliver the projects, to support the learners. The learners get individual support because obviously they're um, it's a smaller class size, so we can do that. But 
For me, the differentiation is by outcome. So what the students produce as an outcome will differentiate from that student who's going on um, above and beyond and for the student who's sort of meeting the need. But in in my professional opinion, I'm seeing students who are stretching themselves further with the support of parents at home too because there's that tight partnership. And the outcomes they produce are so amazing that they have that self-belief and self-efficacy and therefore it's like a self-fulfilling prophecy. If I'm 10 years old and I'm in the online school and I'm doing these four blocks, do I have a different teacher for each block? Mostly. So um, they have a subject specialist teacher for each area. But for example, I teach um, English and I teach technology. So uh 10-year-old class have me for two of those areas. So okay. they'll have they have me for English three times a week and for technology three times a week. But there are other subjects, it's a different teacher three times a week. And how do you do things like handwriting? They practice their handwriting in a um a book and then they take a photograph and they will um send it, they'll attach it onto a PowerPoint or a Word document, and then their teacher can give them feedback from that. They also can do things like angle their cameras so the teacher can actually see how they're handwriting. Um, And we're also looking at different technology that we could potentially hook into so that the the students write on the screen and the teacher can see how they're forming their letters and so on. So that's part of our progress. Do you think it's going to continue to grow? Yes, I think it is. I think we need to... um, be more known so i think it's important to get the word out and let people know that we do exist and that um there are you know there's many benefits from an online school for many many students and i think we will continue to grow definitely because there is a need there's nothing different out there you know most on-site schools it's pretty much a classroom a teacher Maybe the furnishings change, maybe their philosophy or their values change. And like I say, for most students, that works. But there are a growing number of students who need something different, and we are offering something different, and it works. It works beautifully. Do you follow the terms of a traditional school? In what way? How, what do like you mean? Like you have term one, term two. Term oh, the terms. Two. Yes. Yes, we do. We have terms. Well, because we're a private school, um, we have a three-week break in the middle of the year, which a lot of private schools do. But yeah, we follow the same, pretty much the same timings for our terms. Mm. And what about programs like Mathletics that are online programs for teaching maths? Uh, I can't remember the name of it, but there was a I've seen an online program for teaching kids comprehension yes, we, and reading. Yeah, we, we use some of those resources, and um, Rodney, we've got we use Sunshine Classics for our readers for the younger students because there's online journals and activities on there. We use Study Ladder, which is an amazing resource which is used in in regular schools. Um, we also use Education Perfect for the older students, which again is a great online platform, and it just works. It works really seamlessly with us because we're already online, and it's just great resources for the um, students to support in their classrooms presumably too you can as principal you can sort of enter any classroom 
and check how it's going without anyone yes. knowing? Well, they would see me arrive mostly. Okay. <laughs> but yes, I can. I can pop in. Um, but they usually would see me come in. You know, is we would see somebody else if they joined this Zoom meeting. Um, but that's okay. We, you know, there are times when I've dipped in and out of different classes, and it's they're very welcoming and it's quite lovely. We also on a um, on a Friday, the year one to ten students, we have an assembly. It's such a lovely time of the week because they all come together. And if you think back to when you were in school, Rodney, and when I was in school, assemblies were very much the principal was at the front and everybody sat in rows and they were quiet and you know it was one person speaking, but. The online space is so collaborative. So, you know, I can be talking and talking about the value for next week and then a student might chip in and add to that. And it's it's lovely. It's really, really good fun. And we sing the national anthem, even though our internet speeds are all different and it makes it sound, um, you know, not as tuneful as it might if we were all in person, but they're so respectful and it's so much fun. We dress up every week. There's a theme every week and people rock up to the assembly dressed up. And I think all of those things help to build relationships. We also have older students who might write stories and then go and read them to the younger students in their classroom. So we visit each other in different online classrooms as well. So it's it's good. It's good. Really so good you fun. came to this through serendipity. Yes. And you've become passionate and a great advocate. Yes, yes, most certainly. And I think if I'm very happy here and I want to stay here and I want to see this grow because I want to offer something that meets the needs of the students and young people in New Zealand who are not having their needs met in our regular schools. And that's not a criticism of the school or the school leadership. It's just how it is. We need something different. The world has changed. But if I was to ever go back into a regular school, I would be looking for ways, when I say regular school, I mean on-site school, I would be looking for ways that I could organize my resources so that we could offer something like this to mm. those students in that school who would need it because it's it's really powerful. It's a powerful way to connect learners. It's really modern. It's, it, you know, it's really contemporary. Mm. We We do have students. We have... Two girls recently, for example, I think they're 11. They saved up money. They worked out how much it would fly. It would cost to fly one from the north right down to the South Island. Um, and they halved the amount of money. So they saved up and they paid, the, both of them paid for one student to fly all the way down to visit the other student and spend some time together. Now, how's that? That's just... It's amazing. At 11 years old, most kids would be relying on parents to to guide them. And obviously parents helped and supported, but I just think it's amazing. Yeah. Do some parents uh, through this go from the full online school to having the parental help option? I don't know what you call that now. Parent-led, yeah. Parent-led. Option or do, uh, do some go the other way? Is your swapping between the two? Both, yes. So we've had students who joined us in the parent led arm of the school who've come over to um, the teacher led, and we've had students who've joined teacher led who've moved over to parent led. For example, we had one student who was, um, you know, struggling a little bit with her own challenges and she went over to parent led for a couple of terms and then came back to teach mm. you so it's definitely interchangeable and that's no problem for you not at all no nothing's a problem you know we 
we design. I love to hear that. <laughs> it's not, and that's what's lovely about it. We if if we have a student who comes in, for example, in year twelve, and they need a particular set of credits, they don't have to study NCA year by year. They might we can design bespoke courses for them, so they might be able to do it sooner, or they might be able to take a longer period of time than one year if they need. But we're able to do that, I think, because we don't have constraints and we we really like to look for flexible and creative ways to meet the need of each learner. Well, Syrah Boyle, it sounds absolutely wonderful. Um, I can't imagine how much fun this would be and how exciting it would be for kids. Mm. If I'm a parent or a grandparent listening, how do I find out more? Um, you can go to our website. So uh, if you were to Google Mount Hobson Academy, the website will come up. Online, it's still known as Mount Hobson Middle School, but you can um, – yeah, check out the website. Our phone numbers are on the website. You can email me at s.boyle at mthobson.school.nz and um, I will reply to you and give you all the information you need. Why don't you, because people are now running around to get their pencils, <laughs> give us your email again, Sarah. No problem. So my email address is s.boyle, B-O-Y-L-E, at mt for mount mount hobson dot school dot nz so you can check out our website at mount hobson academy or you can email me and i will get back to you immediately well thank you for joining us this morning and you've seen a bit of a shiver down my spine because i imagine for so many children that i know and i'm thinking of myself growing up yeah. i hated every minute i was at school mm -hmm. i detested it Mm. And it wasn't because anything bad happened to me. I just didn't like the behavior, the kids, the teachers, the sitting in the classroom. Yeah. And I was a bright little kid who did nothing. And I was, when I look back on it, I was scared of school. Yes. Something yes. I always felt that I'd get into trouble and I just wanted to be home with mum. Yeah. Yeah. One of my and own. That, that was me when I was 12. Yeah. Yeah. Isn't it funny? And I, um, I couldn't even learn because I was sort of so mortified yes. by the whole prospect of it. It just the whole yeah. thing to me seemed wrong. And I never understood. I'd do it, but I never understood sitting in a classroom and a teacher up there. And then the other thing I found was just go over and over and over the same stuff. Mm. And then this constant stopping because someone was misbehaving. Yes, and, yes. Um, in those days, teachers would throw chalk at you, or they'd never <laughs> throw chalk at me. Yeah. But they'd throw chalk at someone in the class, and I'd be the kid most upset by it. Yes. The kid that got the chalk, it didn't bother him. Yes. For me, I'd be just mortified that this behavior was – I just never seen behavior like that. So I can imagine, oh, my goodness. Well, there you have it. That was Syra Boyle. What a wonderful teacher and principal. And you have an online school that you can join. You can have it parent-led or student-led. You can swap between the two as your circumstances change or your students' needs change. And I think for, I don't know, for one of my kids, might be just perfect because the commitment to homeschool for 
is a bit much at times. Yes. You can find out more about that by going to the webpage. What was the webpage again, Sarah? If you Google Mount Hobson Academy, we will come up. It'll come there up as go. Mount Hobson. Google Mount yeah. Hobson Academy and you will find the school. Thank you for the time this That's morning. Great. I just imagine you have so much fun. And it's good to see that you're not teaching in your pajamas. <laughs> Some days we do, if it's dress up day. <laughs> <laughs> if it's dress up day. Because yeah. you can sort of imagine, oh, I've got to go to school today. Oh, well, I'll just yeah. go along and uh, um, you're, well, you're well dressed. Yeah. Okay, Sarah, thank you so much and good luck. Thank you. If you ever have the need and you've got things to say, I would welcome you back. Thank you so much, Rodney. I really appreciate this opportunity. Thank you so much. Mm, Take care. Bye-bye. All right. Bye. There you have it, ladies and gentlemen. You're on Rally Check Radio, Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. Uh, My goodness, what a great idea. And well done, Al and Paul and Karen Paul, for setting this up for both for teachers and for parents through the COVID years. And what an opportunity. Uh, and another, what's the word, option uh, for your kids' schooling uh, to take care of. You can send me a text at 2057 with your thoughts and ideas. Email me inbox at radleycheck.radio and you know. You're on Rally Check Radio, Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. What a lovely show we've had. Hope you've enjoyed it. I certainly have. I loved having you along. I hope you'll send me a text or an email, text 2057, email me inbox at radleycheck.radio. I enjoy enjoy talking to Dr. Trotter uh, and her PhD. In fact, I've read a big chunk of it, which isn't something I expected to be doing. And I do enjoy when there is a dissident Maori speaking out against those who would present themselves as speaking on behalf of Maori because it's sort of nothing more reeks of identity politics and saying these are my people I speak for them we're all of one view on this as it's done in politics and it's particularly delightful when you have someone as erudite and as studied and as qualified as uh, Dr Trotter oh I enjoyed the control group hope you did Denny Fielder Van Cleef what a lovely name. Uh, what a woman. She's like our three ladies, isn't she? Just making it happen. And um, I signed up. I signed up while she was talking to the control group. That's how easy it is, just to support them and just to be a member. So next time they come to vex me, I'll say, look, I'm very, very sorry. I'm a member of the control group. And I did enjoy hearing from Syra Boyle and learning about the Mount Hobson Online Academy. Because I think that's genius, particularly when you're able to get those teachers, good teachers, principal teachers, who were mandated out of schools, and they could teach from home. I bet that was wonderful for them. And I actually have had some feedback. uh, That's a reason we got uh, Sarah on, about people that are just loving the school. There you go. That's our show. Hope you loved it. Hope you enjoyed it as much as I do. We'll talk next Thursday. Oh, my goodness. The weeks are flying by. Send me a text, 2057. Email me, inbox at radleycheck.radio. Remember, that's your little gift to me, even your criticisms. Thank you for listening. You've been listening to Real Talk with Rodney Hyde on RCR Reality Check Radio.